Welcome to another episode of Renegade Trade Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front, no smell of stale coffee, Ben Gay, and or disappointment. You know what I'm talking about. RDI is us as podcast, <laughs> where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done, and I pick their brain for your entertainment and hopefully education. If you enjoy this podcast, folks, help me out. Here's what I need you to do. First, I need you to subscribe if you haven't already subscribed, um, either on iTunes or whatever, using SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, whatever. And then the next part's really important. I need you to go rate me on iTunes, not rape, rate, rate me on iTunes. I'm married. You can't rate me anymore. Um, I need that. I need that, folks. That's how the iTunes universe works. And I need that help. And if you enjoy these podcasts, I need that. Also, what I need you to do is share it all across social media. I remember the goal is in the next year to get up to 5,000 weekly listeners and 1,000 subscribers, and I need your help to do that. So I'm committed to the next year, but to move on to the third year, that's what I'm going to need to do it. So if you haven't already, go to renegadedetroit.com, check us out. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess, and I'm on Snapchats at Jeremy A. Burgess. And of course, you always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. All right. Legal disclaimer. That's the way of the world, folks. Don't blame me. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision or decisions, you contact a lawyer, an attorney, and or other licensed professionals. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investor Show Quote of the Week, where I try to pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this comes off of Mr. Brent Maxwell's Facebook page, All right. which I thought was funny. The only free cheese is in the mousetrap. <laughs> you knew I would pick that one. Russian proverb, Russian proverb although it's just yes. smart, right? The only free cheese is in the mousetrap. This is a free podcast, by the way, folks. Just thought I'd point that out. Let me introduce you to my guest, Mr. Brent Maxwell. Brent is a full-time real estate investor and a real estate agent with over two decades of real estate experience. He graduated from the University of Michigan and Wayne State University. He's closed over 1,000 deals, currently manages over how many rental properties? It's actually just over 250 at the moment. 250 in Metro Detroit for clients all over the world. And with partners has invested three point five plus million dollars. That's probably higher now, right? It's been a year. I don't have numbers for the last year, but it's it's at least yeah, that. at least three point five million in, in Detroit real estate in two thousand fourteen. Um, his Detroit rental portfolio generated an ROI of seventeen point two percent. That was the least of his last year, and he's a husband, father. And as a side note, he did adopt two rescue dogs for me. You should definitely check it out. Go to IPS realty.com ips realty.com and check it out welcome brett welcome thank you glad to have you here so, so you said you do a podcast with uh, interesting and successful people i'm glad you made an exception for me this week but i'm glad to be here <laughs> if i'm allowed to do this you're allowed to be here i think that's, fair enough that's, water seeks its own level exactly <laughs> here i am and you so brent was literally one of the first people so we got to tell a war story right yeah. One of the first people I met when I came to Detroit all 
what do we call it, doughy-eyed and ready to be eaten by wolves just in time for the market crash of 2007. Yeah. JB-realestate uh, USA or something? No, no, you forgot another dash. <laughs> There's another dash in there? Oh, yeah, I went Two all dashes. Dashes. Yeah. Yeah, that's classic. No, JB dash real estate dash solutions. That was my. We're here at k-w-dash.com. <laughs> Thanks for, uh, I appreciate being able to be in the humble, humbled in the house of Gary Keller, man of, uh, great wisdom. I, I, I read his, uh, I'm currently reading his one book, um, every day when I, um, instead of praying to the porcelain God, I pray to Gary Keller on the porcelain God. Amen. <laughs> Keller bless. So I moved here into Detroit here. I moved to Detroit in 2007, May of 2007. And I met you at the Macomb Ria and you had a flyer. Yeah, it was back when they were on, uh, no, wait. Or on the left hand at the, the Italian Center and Grash the Grecian no, Center. I think that was the second one they were at. They were at another location. It doesn't matter. I'm going to bore them the yeah, shit out of these things. Ago. So that was ten years ago, eight. That's almost ten. Nine something. Yeah, I guess yeah. almost ten. Yeah. Anyway, you had a sheet. You had a flyer, and on it you had a bunch of shit Detroit properties. And I like shit Detroit properties. <laughs> and you had one. I, I'm trying to remember. Do you remember what street it was on? The one you bought. No, I never bought it from you. I, I gave you the EMD and I lined up the financing and then the market fell through and it, it, it just died. And my, my lender's number, it was, I can't remember even what lending that company was. my buddy T's house. That was on uh, Phillips Street on Bill Jefferson up. Chalmers yes. Creekside area on the east side. It was either 240 or 300. 240. It was 240 Phillip then. 240 yeah. Phillip. Yeah. I wonder if that's been sold or been torn down. It was needed a lot of work. I worry every once in a while about Alzheimer's and I remember things like this. Yeah. I'm like, you know. That was a cool house, though. <laughs> That's a, so that part of Detroit over there, four eight uh, was it two one five two one five? Yeah, has a bunch of canals. It's kind of a cool little area, and I wanted a rental property over there. I put it under contract. Yeah, put down an EMD. It started to line up the financing with a hard money lender, got approved, and then the market crashed, and then everybody's phone quit working. So yes. that's how that's how. Uh, Brent and I met. That is a great area. I like Creekside. I like that area a lot. It's way better now than it was, and it was kind of scary back then. A little bit overgrown. Yeah, but all uh, of Detroit is better now than it was then. Yeah, I also like the part where there's a huge fence to make sure to keep Detroit on the side of Detroit. That's still there. <laughs> That's still there. Yeah, Gross Point actually has um, Gross Point Park has armed guards uh, roving, roaming the uh, the border. Uh, I can't not, say not quite that bad, but they certainly have their moments. Yeah, I as I, I flop back and forth between I can't say I blame them, and at the same time, eh, it's maybe not the most welcoming gesture, right? If your neighbor is just driving back and forth, I fucking the hell out of you. What are you doing, son? Where are you going with that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way to solve that is to have uh, the socioeconomic status of the east side of Detroit uh, rise up, which yeah. it is. It is. It's but way it's, better than it used to be. Yeah. I drove over there. Boy, Kudraf is over there. I think the last time I was over there, I was driving by, and it's improved significantly. It has. Yeah, prices have gone way up, too. Wish I would have bought more. The good thing about a downturn, folks, is take advantage of that opportunity because, damn, I, I thought I was. Man, I didn't take advantage of any of the opportunity, considering all things considered. So let's go back in time. I just want to – this is how we know each other. You've been doing this a long time. Yeah. Long, I think so. long years. time, right? Where where are you where were you born and where are you from? Pontiac, Michigan, factory town, working class hero. Hero? Yeah. Shotgun house. Tiny little house. 
um, working class immigrant family, uh, legal immigrant. Uh, Back when we still had those? Yeah, first generation on uh, my grandfather's side. Um, he came in and, uh, well, actually, he was born in New York City, but just months after his father moved here from the old country. Where was the old country? Uh, at that time, I think it was Prussia, which became Poland. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good. Krakow. That's, that's a, man, that's been a minute, huh? Prussia. Yeah. I haven't heard yeah, that. Yeah. But the German, Polish people. So I just had my ancestry done. Uh, strange enough, I'm 99.9% European, but all over. They got of course. around. Oh, yeah. Inbreeding over there with <laughs> other Europeans. So they had their action going on everywhere from the south to the north, the west, the east, and everywhere in between. How'd you escape Pontiac? Um, we moved when I was nine years old to East Dearborn, which is the uh, largest community of uh, Arabs and Middle Easterns outside of uh, the Middle East. Yeah, we got the good ones, too. I kind of feel bad for the rest of the world. We don't have any problems with ours. I never had any problems at all. Yeah, I mean, I was, they're I mean, great. It was, it was a mixed neighborhood, but it was you know a third or half, um, basically mostly Lebanese and um you know, at that time, Lebanon was uh, going through their big war with the issues in Beirut. And um, during the Carter and Reagan years, it was uh, it was rough times over there. But, uh, you know, I never had any issues with any uh, any Arabs or Middle Eastern people or anything other than just typical stuff that you would have growing up in, in any town with other kids. But, no, there was no, you know, people got along and it was not a big deal. At some point, you ended up in California doing a bunch of no good or whatever you were doing. Were you like a like a band or had some sort of shit? Where you yeah, been? man. What, what was years. Brent before Brent became a real estate agent and a, and a real estate investor? I moved out to California to become a rock star and ended up working on uh, cooking shows and game shows and partying way too much and hanging out with the wrong crowds and playing with the long, wrong playmates and the wrong playgrounds and the wrong playthings and... Uh, and uh, spiraling down over a four and a half year period, made some good music in the process, but uh, <laughs> and had some interesting uh, interesting times. But no, I had to come back. The prodigal son had to come back with his tail between his legs back to Michigan. And I tell you this: after leaving Michigan and coming back to it, um, I appreciated it a lot more when I came back to it. Dude, Michigan's great fucking place. great. I'm not from here, but this is an awesome. Where else can you get these four seasons? A pretty robust economy, diversified, yeah. robust economy, beautiful weather. I don't know. I fucking love this place. It's a little bit too humid. I don't mind the humidity. Yeah, it doesn't bother me. The end of February gets a little grind. A little yeah. By the end of February, I'm tired of the, the cold and the ice and snow. And the snow starts off white at the beginning of the winter, but by, by the end of February, pretty much everything is gray. The sky is gray. The trees are gray. The snow turns gray. Um, even the people are gray. Why does the snow have to be white, Brent? Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I'll do that. But anyway, what did you play an instrument or did you sing? I'm just curious. Play guitar. What I was the band name? I got to know the band name, man. I had a couple bands. Couple? Okay. Yeah, which ones? The one in LA, though, was uh, Future Leaders of the World, which actually became another band that uh, there was a band named that. that uh, it's got some radio airplay that's kind of awful. We didn't sound anything like that. We were a big beat band, kind of like. Uh, prodigy or fat boy slim or chemical brothers or crystal method along that vein i have no idea what that is it's just uh rocking beats okay yeah didn't take off for you uh no no 
no, not, no uh, Maxwell groupies. No, there were some Maxwell groupies to be sure, but um, <laughs> but no, there was no uh, uh, there there were too many distractions that uh, that didn't allow the uh, the music to blossom properly. I feel like that happens to a lot of people. Ellie will do that to you, yeah. And uh, people who tend, I think that uh, that people who get attracted to LA. I've heard it said that if you, if you take the world on its side and, and shake it, everything loose will end up in LA. Um, <laughs> that explains a lot, actually, if that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, was it always your dream to move to LA and become a rock star? No, no, not at all. No, I wanted to be, uh, as a kid, I wanted to be a businessman and, uh, um, you know, basically doing what I am now, some kind of uh, mogul with my empire, uh, which is my business coach calls it. I kind of say it's not really an empire. He's like, it's your empire. It's, it is what it is. So I got a few houses, a few buildings, uh, some, some contracts, some people that work with me, you know, employees of business. So, you know, it's uh, uh, the new American dream, owning your own business. Everyone should own their own business. I think if everybody not, should be the business not, of them. If not all the time, at least at some point in their life. I mean, there's some, something to be said for uh, the American fiefdom and the apprenticeship and uh, putting your time in and, and um, you know, learning, uh, which I certainly made some mistakes in the way I went about things, you know, yes. as far as just being stubborn and bullheaded and do it myself attitude and just kind of grind and plow ahead. Ditto. But, uh, um, yeah, everyone should do it at some point. And it doesn't have to be real estate. It can be whatever it is that you're you're passionate about. Um, at least that's my suggestion. Yeah. Well, I was a I don't know what it is about being a young male. It seems like I made pretty much every stupid mistake I can make as a young male. And I and look back lived. at it. Well, I look back, I don't even recognize who that person was. That person was a moron, you know? Just bumbling fucking through life, one dumb thing after another. Yeah. Where is this gonna lead me? Mm-hmm. You know? I didn't end up in LA with some shitty band, but um Worse, actually. <laughs> At least you had a band and some groupies, you know? I don't know, I, I just feel like, I think to your point, we all have to go. Well, you had a lot of groupies on the submarine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what they say? A hundred men go down and 50 couples come up. They didn't all go down. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, this is deteriorating. This is why I wanted to do this podcast. This is awesome. <laughs> so anyway, you decided uh, at some point that your rock star career wasn't going to happen. Oh, it decided it for me. Okay. So you rode that bitch to the end. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I let go with claw marks all over. I mean, I still have a studio at home. I play I play guitar this morning. You oh, know? I love I, that. So you didn't, you got claw marks all over it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still, still play around, make some music, and, uh, and collect some gear, you know? I look at the I look at the things I have in my life now, and um, I'm reminded of the uh, the Frank Zappa quote where he uh, had uh, um, a music reporter came and interviewed him and walked through his house and his studio, and it's like, Frank, wow, look at all this gear you have and all this stuff you have. How'd you get all this gear? Frank looked at him and said, "I stopped doing coke." <laughs> <laughs> It's Coke is expensive. How, it's amazing how yeah. removing some uh, some bad habits from your life can uh, certainly clean up your ability to. Uh, uh, to slowly acquire wealth. Yeah, you can't have that kind of hole in your pocket. No. Now you need a cheaper drug if you're going to do that, right? Well, I mean, my my drugs now. I mean, I I mean, everybody gets high in their own way every day. Caffeine. I certainly drink my share of uh, yep. coffee, to be sure. Middle aged drug of choice, folks. Indeed. I love it. Um, also, I uh, you know, I get high off the deals, man. I like doing deals. I it's mean, like I, hunting. I like it. It is hunting. I yes. refer to it as hunting. Yeah. 
You know, people call it prospecting. I call it hunting. It's you know, hunting. I also look at it though as there's a farming element to it. For sure. You know, building a business and creating a passive inventory of rental properties. And in my case, also combined with that, a property management business that's run by others um, is farming. You know, I mean, I, I have a passive income. And a lot of years of work too, right? I love the farming analogy. I think is just so great with business because it's the same way. It's like your relationships are everywhere. You got to plant seeds. You got to mm-hmm. tend to them. You got to nurture them. And then if you don't do that, you don't never get to harvest, you know, no yield. And if you harvest everything, you have no seed for the next year. Right. Yeah. It's a great well, analogy. All you got to do is suit up and show up, grind it out every day and do the next right thing. And that's, that's the thing people miss is you can't just grind it out every day and be an asshole. You can't grind it out every day and screw everybody over. You have to grind it out every day and do the next right thing. A lot of times it hurts, you know. I just made a phone call right before we started this podcast where I had to kick back $1,500 to, uh, to an investor on some rents where I said I would credit them uh, first month's rents on some tenants that moved in an apartment building. And, uh, you know, it maintains a long-term business relationship. So it's... It's, you know, it's a, I mean, certainly $1,500 is not chump change, but in the grand scheme of things, it's irrelevant. What matters is being able to do the next right thing. Mm. Deals too. I love deals. Yes. Back to your hunting analogy, which I I love. Um, There is something exciting about doing it, you know, especially the more you do it, it reinforces the behavior. And then you're more excited when you do it. And you know, when you're getting close to, you know, I do anyway, you're like, oh shit, I got this one, you know? Yeah. Well, the other good part is like, I was up, uh, was up North this weekend, um, on Lake Huron and, uh, you know, I got, uh, two emails over the course of the weekend about deals that were in flux and in play where I got a yes and a yes. And it's just, it's a great feeling. Every time, every time, every time. Now, how do you, I don't know what, do you track any of your metrics or how many offers you have to make before you get a deal? Do you do anything like that or you just? So, yes. Um, as far as offers versus deal, we're doing like straight MLS offers. MLS is a multiple listing service, which is, uh, what all the agents in, in Michigan use to share information and, and control the market. Um, thanks to their, uh, powers through the monopoly, uh, the lovely, uh, evil monopoly, uh, greater metropolitan association of realtors, which I'm a member of also the North Oakland County board of realtors, which I'm an associate member of and the Detroit association of realtors also an associate member of, we give money through these organizations to the Michigan association of realtors who gives money to the national association of realtors, which is one of the biggest lobbies there is. We are, we're certainly not the biggest gang in the land, but we're amongst them. I can't wait until they're destroyed. Okay. I don't think I don't, may not happen in my lifetime. That and the teachers union. That's what I'm waiting for. Those two things to fall like dominoes. Boom. Free the industry. Okay. Well, I think the, <laughs> I don't think teachers are the problem in teaching, but uh No, the union's the problem, not the teachers. We need yeah. teachers. We yeah. need well-paid teachers. They pay well-paid. them better and it attracts better talent to the to the organization to the job. <laughs> the market determines what they get paid. That's what I think. Then we as a culture need to reevaluate the value that we put on the education of our children. Nobody gives a shit about children, Brent. Parents do. No, they don't. If they did, this world would be very different. Everybody pretends to care about children, then they go, what's in it for me? And then they go vote. You know, Otherwise, Otherwise, it doesn't make any sense. None of this makes any sense from uh, from the perspective of a child. I have I have two kids uh um in a a small holistic um very parent 
um, involved uh, grade school, private school in Detroit. And um, I think that by and large, the parents in this particular school are very much com- concerned about and care about their kids and make sacrifices for, for their children. At least this group of people. Does. Well, absolutely. Yeah. I'm not now, right down the street from it yeah. is a, a Detroit public school where, yeah, I mean, I don't know what can be said there. It's just, uh, it's not the same thing. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing can be said. That's why I want it gone. But anyway, we're getting sidetracked here again. I love these things. I just can't wait for them to be gone and then people can decide what they want to do. Okay. Take three. Yeah, take three. No, we're not doing take three. And that's a reference to what I call the lost episode. <laughs> no one will ever hear it. I don't even get to hear it. You won't even let me hear it. No, I'll let you hear it. I'll, I'll let you, uh, what I tell you, though, put it on your thumb drive. I can do that for you today. Do you have a thumb drive with you? I don't want to hear it again. You don't want to hear it I again? I through it once. That it was, was pretty enough. bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. What about, what about if we, we put a contest? Oh, we'll do it later. Maybe we can release it. We all have to be rich, though, I think, or something, because once that goes out there, yeah, definitely yeah. have a negative impact. A smidge, I would say. Yeah, you know what they say. If you're going to tell someone the truth, make them laugh or they'll kill you. Yeah, more <laughs> more worse for me than anything else. I mean, <laughs> some quarterback won't stand for the national anthem and they lose their mind. They're not going to like what I had to say in the podcast. Oh, I had to so. there. <laughs> I had to play the Kaepernick card. I'm on his side. You know what? I, I, if I we can have before. KKK members in this country, we can have some dumb quarterback have an opinion and move on and it's fine. What's the problem here? I don't understand. Well, Just, there's two problems. Number one is he did it while he was at work. Okay. So he's on the company dime. It's an employer that. problem though. That's an employee employer problem. Yeah. That needs to be dealt with. And and then number two, he's arguably the single worst quarterback starting in the NFL, which is a bigger problem. It is. You know, than uh than the the free speech slash um protest issue. You know, I wonder who they're going to grab next. Some plumber asked him or her what they think and then vilify them because that's the most important news we have. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kaepernick, the plumber. He might be a plumber next year. Kids can't read. You know, roads can't get fixed. We're concerned about this guy. Hey, well, white privilege in a nutshell. I saw this today. I thought it was great. Donald Trump says America's not great and everybody cheers. Not everybody, but plenty of people cheer. Um, Kaepernick says America's not great and everybody boos. That's white privilege in a nutshell. The other one I saw that was interesting was uh, someone commented that uh, the people are complaining about the, the Black Lives Matter and saying that you can protest but do it, you know, politely and quietly. So Kaepernick just silently sits down and, and everybody's like, no, don't do it like that. Yeah, that's I don't know. That's part I don't understand. That's exactly how you're supposed to do it, by the way. Didn't destroy anybody else's property. Maybe pissed off his employer. Right. Because you're that was a good point. It was on their dime at that point in time. But uh, I don't know. I feel like it's a minor infraction. I've never liked the uh, Star Spangled Banner as a national anthem anyway. I didn't realize until just this week that uh, that it does have a, a certainly a, a slavery, uh, an anti, um, anti-slave anti verse about basically killing slaves who went to fight um, for the Brits during uh, during the war. But um, that's the problem with nationalism above everything else. Well, right? I never knew that. Man. But, the, but the main verses, though, I've always thought about is what a fucking warmongering song. Bombs and rockets and... War, war, war. I mean, it is fitting, yeah. sure. But I've always thought, and, and don't get me started on God Bless America, because that's that's completely the wrong direction as far as I'm concerned. Um, Which you know, God? There's, yeah, well. That's I always mean, my question. Not the wrong one, I hope. There's only one God, and his name is uh, Santa. Santa. And, uh, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and Muhammad is his prophet, right? Is there anybody left know. in this audience that's like, fuck these two guys? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I think I think we say things that other people think and that, that they either hate or like or just don't care. And I think a lot of that apathy is certainly there. But uh, but it's one of the reasons why the I like you. About it is the, the, I think the America, as far as national anthem goes, we should have America the Beautiful as our national anthem, which is just a really great song that talks about the land um, and the beauty of the country. And I think it's really what we need as far as a mindset to go, you know, and look at, so sure, America's not great. America's also great. It's, it's everything. It's, it's, you can look at anything and pick it apart or you can look at anything and build it up. Um, nowhere else have I had an opportunity except to live in America. So I'm kind of skewed by being the fish in the American water, but I'm happy with the opportunities I've been provided. I certainly have taken advantage of white privilege when I've known it and when I haven't known it. Um, I've taken advantage of being European um, and, you know, being able to speak and being educated, thankfully, through, uh, by and large, through a public school system, which didn't do me wrong as far as uh, getting some science and mathematics, English uh, as a first language and the ability to write. Um you know, the skewed political history and poly science, a little bit of that, but there are some teachers in there along the way. And it comes down to those individual teachers who were able to, uh, to, uh, create someone who, who thinks and asks questions and has doubt. And I think that if everybody is raised that way, um, it'd be better. You know, I'm considering Catholic school for high school for the kids. You almost um, have to because of the Jesuit tradition of questioning and doubting. And, you know, that's not not a bad thing. No. Lots of doubt. That's why I think I lead with skeptic. People are not skeptical enough, too willing to believe anything and everything that comes down. And all history proves is how wrong we are all the time. I don't know. You'd think after reading it, you'd just be more skeptical in general. But we're oh so sure of everything all the time. I know exactly, Brent, how you should live. That's the part I hate. Yeah, the only things I'm sure of is the... Uh the conditional love for my wife and the unconditional love for my kids, you know, and I say that conditional DNA love for my trumps. wife because it's a contract. It is. There's, there's an agreement, you know, I mean, if, if, if I were to go out and do a bunch of uh, cliche, stupid things, I wouldn't expect to be um, kept and loved under those circumstances, you know, but I mean, the kids do stupid things and they're going to continue to be loved by me. Well, kids are kids, you yeah. know, that's that's one thing. So, kids so love. Kids. Yeah, I know love. I know love. What else do I know? I know nothing. I have some ideas, you know, but I certainly have doubts, and I can willing to question everything and entertain ideas that are outside of my uh, generalized belief uh, paradigms. That's one of the things I like about you. Be. You should be able to entertain an idea that you don't even believe in and argue for it and or against it. Otherwise, I say. You don't really have a good idea, right? If you can't, right. if you don't know both sides of the argument, it's not it's not what you have just a part of an idea, right? And if you can't explain it simply, then you can't explain it. Yeah, like a dogma. But anyway, now we're off track on that. Back on the real estate, I do like that. I vote for no national anthem. That would be my vote. What about no national? Uh, that would be my greatest <laughs> vote. Yeah, we're no losing listeners. Uh, but by the minute, they're like, oh, there's six left. They're like, fuck you, get the real estate. So anyway, you move back to Michigan. The path to real estate, was it clear or how did you end up being 
How did you end up getting into real estate? I want to hear the the, the Brent Maxwell story of getting well, into real estate. In some way, it's kind of a necessity. I mean, we are in a in a, a a somewhat capitalist country where you're not able to necessarily pursue the things that you're best suited for or that you want to do with total freedom. Um, so I got into real estate for the purposes of freedom. Um, I came back to Michigan and uh, went back to college and uh, worked on. Uh, um, worked on working towards an advanced degree in cognitive science, uh, human machine interaction, artificial intelligence, uh, basically a multiple, multiple disciplinary uh, field of computer science, mathematics, uh, a little bit of philosophy and psychology from a functional standpoint. Um, but, and I, I, I was able to pursue that pretty well. I actually worked under a grant from NASA for a while, which technically made me a rocket scientist as far as I'm concerned. And I used that to, uh, use that to my advantage. Was that on uh, your business card? Ah, uh, no, I just tell it to the ladies, <laughs> which is how I met my wife. Yeah. And now we're married. There you go. Yeah. No, I didn't use the rocket science one on her, but, um, um, it, um, it got me to the point where I was considering going towards a PhD, but the problem was is that you have to live and pay for that. Well, the college, if you're going for a PhD in a, in a heavy science field, pretty much the PhD itself is free and you actually get a job with the university paying at that point in time the, the whopping sum of about $15,000 a year as a research assistant or a teaching assistant. Mm. Didn't really work. No, you're that's like, ah, not, that's not, not going to cut feasible, it. Yeah. You know, I mean, if I was 25, maybe, but not, not my early thirties. So I did what anybody else in my position would do. I went into uh, home improvement sales, which worked well. I was a tin man. Um, siding. Yeah. I did siding. I did window door knocking. Yeah. No, I, did, right. I, did, I, did, I had hot leads. I didn't do door knocking. You didn't do door knocking. No, that's I, some old school I, shit right yeah, there. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, you didn't get dropped <laughs> in the neighborhood and knock on all the doors. No. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was a tin man and basically, you know, it was in-home sales and, um, I was quitting smoking at the time. So I would, um, go in and, and go through my presentation and then sit down at the house and I did finish basement sales as well. And that was the best one because it was a really long structured sales process. You're in the house for basically two hours going over all the options of the basement, measuring and getting, getting to know your clients and getting them involved in the process and emotionally attached. When you start to work out your numbers, then you play a short DVD video. We had these little handheld DVD players back in the early 2000s, set it down, put the, the DVD down to play. It was like a four minute commercial. And while that's playing, I sit down and, and scribble out my, uh, my numbers of what the job's going to cost. So what I would do is when I was in the basement, before I came upstairs to sit down at the dining room table or the kitchen table to do the final close, I would pop, Two Nicorette, chew them, mm. and pinch them between my cheek and gum. That'll do it. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. Get and then sit down, and basically <laughs> I'm smoking a cigarette at their kitchen table, and I'm like, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Park my ass in the chair and <laughs> sit down and, and just go at it. Slide the contract over, hand the pen. Do you, do you remember what the presentation was like? Do you remember what your closing line was? been a long time I yeah know. it's been a long time I and mean, there's this cliche it's a hard sale i mean of course was, i don't do that kind of stuff anymore but um i still do sometimes you know well you're in a situation where you're in doing wholesaling yeah you know and getting people to sign it in their house you know i mean it's i mean i'll go in that environment once in a while but basically it's just um you know ahead of time what their objection is going to be and you want them to object so you can overcome it because it wears down their defenses and it's just it's it's i don't like that way of selling i don't think it's fair to either party 
Um, and the feds don't like it either. That's why the FTC has a three-day right of rescission on, on in-home sales because people feel pressured during their house and they sign just to get you out of there. Yeah. So the whole point was to get those deals closed and uh, and then hopefully crush your fingers and hold your breath for three days to get past the right of rescission period to make sure you didn't get a, an XCL and cancellation come in through the uh, through the fax machine. Did, did that happen a lot or? It's probably 25% cancels. Really? Yeah. I always wonder why people would rather just sign than say no. That's like a weird human condition. It's a one-call close for a $40,000 product. You know, I mean, it's kind of expensive. It is. But, I mean, I closed 40% of them, had 25% cancel. My close rate was between 20 and 40%. So, you know, 15 to 30, 35%. Not bad. No, it's not bad at all. You know? How'd you get the, how'd you get the leads? Do you remember? Was it like a direct they mail TV thing? Show, TV commercials and afternoon TV. So, I mean, you're dealing with uh, high quality people here who are watching afternoon and early evening television. Uh, if you're an afternoon or early evening television <laughs> watcher listening to this, shut off your fucking TV, TV and yeah. kill your fucking television. Yeah, get rid of it, man. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a horrible machine. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna watch it, do do you know? If you're gonna watch a little sports, I get it. You know, do your thing. You're entertained with that. Um, watch movies or watch shows on demand where you can skip the commercialization of the content. There's no benefit to that to you. No, you know. Other than the Super Bowl where the commercials are somewhat entertaining, but they've even gotten weaker over the last few years. You know, it's kind of a, a diminishing, uh, diminishing return on that. So yeah, we're inoculated from that shit. A lot of that shit doesn't work anymore. You got to spend a lot of money and it works less and less every year. So you get 40,000 for a basement. It's an expensive product. It's about $70 a foot. What, what were you doing? You know, what were we doing? Yeah. Like what were you doing to the basement? Oh yeah, you can want a basement. Most of these are on new construction houses, um, like McMansions and Shelby Township. This is oh, okay, all right. Never so mind. Yeah. you got a big empty pulty box with prefabbed um, uh, basement foundation walls. Pulty just, is a builder, by the way, a nation. So yeah. Pulty Toll Brothers. These are the big builders that uh, that would do this kind of houses, and they basically buy up a farm and then take the farm and put a subdivision in, and put streets yep. in, and, and build a bunch of houses and, and develop it, um, and. You're talking about companies that are so obnoxious that they do things like they, they realize that the cost of putting in, um, putting in brackets behind drywall where it meets in a corner is expensive. So they actually hire an engineer to write a study showing that they don't need brackets behind their drywall in the corner where it meets. Um, and that it's fine to do it without and they get the variances written into the code because of that. So you end up with houses where you can push in on the corner and the walls separate. I mean, these are, these are done where they're counting nail costs. I mean, it's just cheap, cheap, cheap. Um, and volume, volume, volume. And these McMansions are, I mean, they're, they're nice. They're pretty to look at. It's like Hollywood, except it's everywhere. It, if you look behind the curtain, you know, it's all smoke and mirrors to mix metaphors. So you would come in and do like some man cave basement kind of thing. Oh yeah. These basements that. were fucking fabulous. <laughs> they were great. We do carpet tiles with, uh, with rubber on the bottom and carpet tile on top. So if there's ever an issue, you can just yank it out. If it floods, you can take it outside and wash it off. The walls themselves had no cellulose in them. So you put in steel studs and then the walls are basically, it was an Owens Corning product. It's a fiberglass product. Owens Corning, the company that brought you the pink stuff and, uh, other good stuff like asbestos. Um, <laughs> So 
That's keeping a lot of lawyers busy, you know? <laughs> yeah, good exactly. for the economy, man. Yeah, yeah. And for the uh, medical industry, right? Indeed, yeah. What yes. are we going to do without those jobs? Uh, nothing like a little mesothelioma. It won't hurt you. <laughs> Give it 30 or 40 years. You'll be dead by then anyway. Yeah. You know, just keep smoking those cigarettes. The, oh, the sweet death, finally. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the walls were fabulous. They're uh, like a, um, almost like an acoustic ceiling tile, except on the wall. Um, with a thin sheet of uh, of this nicely woven but plastic cloth that had many microfibers of different colors in it. So you could decorate the rooms in reds or blues or purples or whatever colors you wanted. And the walls that were grayish would pick up those colors and it would pop out because in the wall, the colors had all of those microfibers in them of different colors. And it made it so that your eye would carry on and see the purple in the wall and then the purple on hanging something that you had down and it would catch it. Mm. It's kind of a neat concept. And it worked in practice. There was, it was really great though. They put in doors, um, do both sides of the walls, leave unfinished areas for like the furnace room and any laundry area. Sometimes people want it unfinished. And, uh, the ceilings then nice drop ceilings with, uh, recessed lightings. Um, I mean, it was, uh, it was a nice finished product. It was really, really a good room. If you didn't close them there, did you ever go back and close them or it was like a one nope. and done thing? No, you're done. They did have a second round of closers. I wasn't with the company that long, but if you stayed for a while, you got to be one of the cleanup guys who would go in and, um, hit the second time around if they pick up the just, stuff that yeah. missed. Yeah. But basically no, it was a one, one call close. That's that. Damn, that's so different from now. I don't think there's not too many one and done kind of closes anymore. People don't buy like that anymore. No. You got the internet now and, uh, and people do their research beforehand and they're educated, self-educated and in many cases self-miseducated and you got to clean up that. But, um, fucking internet. It's like good and bad, right? All this is, dumb shit is. out there. It's great. Yeah. It cuts you know? both ways. <laughs> it's the yin and yang of information. You know, unfortunately, there's a, a large cesspool of garbage out there and, and there's not enough, um, there's not enough monetization of quality journalism and reporting, um, in, in any area that, that allows it to be, um, as good a tool as it could be if it had, you know, it comes down to the same thing with the teaching. You got people who are in the field, you know, the talent falls, follows the money. Um, and if there's no money in it, then the talent leaves, which is why everyone left Detroit in 2008 because the economy crashed. It was hit exceptionally hard here compared to the rest of the country. And we have a talent vacuum. Now we've got a huge talent vacuum here. You know, construction is fat. I, I have a buddy who does finished carpentry in his house. Um, he's a finished carpenter in his house. He's remodeling. He's done work for Dombrowski, uh, Tigers general manager when he's here. He's done work for, uh, Penske's house and, um, he, he works in the business, has been in the business 25 years, knows everybody. And he's like, Brian, I have a hard time getting contractors out to my house to do work. Yeah. You know, and he lives in the suburbs in a nice house. Well, 95%, 98%, 99% of my houses that I manage or own are in the hood in the city. In not necessarily in the best areas of the city. We're not talking the stuff you see on the, you know, all the blogs and the, uh, uh, the great gentrification of the city. And, you know, um, yeah, we're talking D roll stuff, some of it, right? Hipsters with their kombucha and their, uh, <laughs> their, 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 their drinking cider. And their little skinny jeans, skinny jeans and yeah. iconic, uh, ironic, uh, sweaters with their goofy, uh, oversized glasses that are not prescription. Reminds me of that Facebook group, uh, that, that mocks, uh, hipsters. I don't know if you're part of it. It's always like dropping like 
Stupid hipster stuff. I don't know. It just cracks me up. We draw on the kids. We play hipster or homeless. <laughs> what is that? Hipster or homeless. You point at someone on the side of the road. And you got to decide? Homeless? Hipster yeah. or homeless? Yeah. Is there any way to verify or is this like slug bug? You see one? I you think punch? in many cases it's the same thing. You know? <laughs> Depending. Yeah. Why not both? I mean, you come to Detroit and, you know, it seems like a great opportunity to come here and do startups and, and, and have your thing go. And that's all fine and good. And you end up with, uh, you end up with 22 year old kids who, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't figure their way out of a wet paper bag who, uh, think they're going to open a business and change the world. And you know what? Some of them will. They will. But, uh, but many of them, they won't. They won't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one's winning now. That's winning big. Um, so you did the tin too. Did you do the site? So which company did you go with first? Did you do in the, did you do basements and tin at the same time? No, or? no, the basements were the last home improvement one. The first one was, what um, was your commission on that? By the way, 10%. So you get like, so if you sold a $40,000 basement, you get $4,000. I believe. Yeah. yeah. Holy shit. How many of those you do a week? Usually just one or two in a week. Okay. I mean, you're only going out five, six days, five, six. You only do one showing a day. Really? One, yeah, in the evening, one one set a night. Uh, even that's like some really old school stuff. The, yeah. When's the wife going to be home? Is yeah, there any other decision makers? Got to have a two leg. You can't have a one leg. Got to yep. have both decision makers present. That's right. Got to be yeah. there. Absolutely. What made you, you quit? have to leave if they're not both home. Really? So, you know, we got to reschedule this. Damn, that's hard. Yeah. Well, I'm going to do the presentation once. Uh, what made you um, What made you leave that? It was a fucking awful job. <laughs> Sounds great. $4,000 a week. Can you close one a week? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, an average sure, one that one that closed and stuck. Okay. They didn't all work forty thousand. A lot of them were just twenty thousand dollars jobs. But still, it's you know, it was good money. Two grand a week's not bad. No. Yeah. Um. Even now, that's not bad. No, I moved on to selling carpet then. Okay. At Why Costco, carpet? Through Costco. So Costco has these kiosks. As you walk out Costco, if you're a Costco member, and you walk out, you'll see along the on the way out, you'll see carpet samples on the wall and. uh um, furnaces and air conditioners and window treatments and, uh, carpet and carpet was what, what it was, what I did. So I sold carpet. And the thing with Costco is it's not a totally different kind of sale. I get the leads. They weren't booked for me. It's not like I had a sales manager giving me appointments. My sales manager was disinterested and in Seattle. Um, <laughs> and I would get my leads, uh, faxed in or emailed in. I'm not sure how it was back then, but it was one of the two. Um, but they come in through the computer. Yeah, they're emailed in. Um, and, uh, I got to call and book my own appointments. And, uh, these were Costco members who are Costco shoppers. And if you're not familiar with Costco, much like, uh, KW, it is a cult organization, um, that pays their employees very well and that has good prices on many things and sells things in large quantities and, um, has amazing customer service and fabulous, fabulous warranties. So, People who would buy from you, they're not comparison shopping. They would say, well, I'm going to have Costco come do the carpet. Oh, man, that's a good sell, right? So they're already, they like the brand. They like everything about it. So that's pretty warm when you get those leads, right? These are very warm. Yeah. So you call and set the appointment, go out. I had 50%, you know, close rate. These that's are mostly good close And rate. these are laydowns. You know, you go in and hang out and, and they've already, they've got samples from the store they've looked at. They say, these are the ones I'm interested in. You got a truck full, a trunk full of samples, you know, and you pull them in the house and go over the different, different ones. And they basically, you help them pick the colors. And, uh, measure out the rooms and write it up. 
and uh, they can close it right there on their Costco Amex or, you know, Costco doesn't take, didn't take credit cards at the time. I think they do now, but um, yeah, it was basically cash only. So they either write a check um, they'd write a check to Costco and then you take it in. And as a sales rep, you just go to Costco and you actually go to the front of the line and just run it through like really with their member number and they punch okay. it in and run it through. Cool. So you basically provide that service for them. But yeah, it was, um, that was a great job. seems odd to go from basements to carpet though. What would you, I mean, just want to sell more carpet or I don't know what seemed, why, why'd you make the move? Um, well, the basement job was was rough. Like I said, I didn't enjoy it. Wow. So I set myself up and um, uh, got into it with uh, the manager a couple times and ended up getting myself fired. <laughs> then I went on 26 weeks of unenjoyment. Thank you, federal government and the state of Michigan. Unenjoyment. Unenjoyment. <laughs> got to call. Uh, what's the, bit, the, my what's uncle the the always thought that was the... the you got to call him every week. Yeah. Forget the name. Marvin? Anyway, there's some computer thing you got to call every week. Are you looking for employment? Press one. Yes. Have you turned down any employment? Press two. No. Every week you got to call like Thursday between like 11 and What 1. fucking moron says yes, I turned down employment? So, <laughs> so, so I spent that. that You're too that dumb to get our year, money. <laughs> I, I spent that half a year collecting my, you know, 500 bucks a week or whatever it was. Just, just chilling and going to the gym and working out, mm. you know, and had a great, uh, great period of just, uh, Drinking a lot of coffee and staying up late and playing a lot of, uh, that was back when the Texas Hold'em thing got big. So we played a lot of poker and stayed up late and hung out and, uh, worked out in the gym a lot and just, just kind of regrouped. Ran that bitch to the end and decided yeah, to sell and carpet. The carpet job. Yeah. The carpet job was great. You know, there's no reason why I would have ever, uh, ever stopped it had I not switched gears and went into, uh, real estate. So carpet is what led you to real estate. How'd you end up in real estate? Wendy Patton. Really? Yeah. All right. So Wendy Patton is a uh, a local real estate investor and broker, and I think she's a KW. She is. She's also a national guru about lease options. She yeah. is. She is a national national guru specifically about lease options, and uh, she doesn't do much in Detroit. She does her stuff in the burbs, um, but she's a public speaker, and uh, I went to uh, some real estate investors association meeting and she spoke there and then she had her fortune makers, fortune builders, some, some event that she had, um, over a weekend, uh, which was basically you pay 500 bucks and you go listen to a bunch of different speakers speak about, uh, their different take on, uh, basically gurus is what we call them. Um, and they all spoke and offered their wares and, um, I hooked up with two of them. Uh, Greg Pinio out of Seattle. That's a good one. That's a good who one. Who is um, very self-filtering with his talks. He's an excellent public speaker um, and has a lot of uh, a lot of good uh, knowledge that can be imparted. He has a lot to offer. And the other one was Robert Sheeman that that struck me. And I actually just over the weekend read uh, an old book of Robert Sheeman's, uh, "How Come That Idiot's Rich and I'm Not," which is just a reinforcement of the same things, which basically says. The same mantra I'm going to say is just grind it out, do the next right thing. Um, there's a lot of a lot of tips on there about the difference between um, uh, about difference between assets and liabilities, and consumer spending versus investing. Different kinds of debt. I mean, for someone who's been in the business for a while or, or understands these things, there's not really anything new that was imparted with that. But um, yeah, but if you came out of school, they didn't teach you that shit in school unless you went to college, and not always then either. Yeah, you know? you're not going to get in school or college. Although, yeah. although Pinio did teach a, a college course in uh, University of Washington, mm. 
Um, I'm not sure which college it was, but one of the Washington. Did State you see colleges. Antonio is going to be one of the people speaking at uh, Greg Pino's All Star event this year? Antonio Lombardo. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was pretty cool. He's down in Florida. Yeah. He's in another cult. Yeah, he's in another cult. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's a yes. lot of these cults out there. Yeah, everybody's got their cults. You know, I've got my cult. You've got your cult. And uh, I have no Antonio cults. Has his cult. I have no cults. Yeah. Okay. So what was it about Wendy? Pat? So you went to. So Wendy brought you in, and then Greg and Robert got you. Got you going. What the hell? There's some rattling here. Yeah. Sorry about that, on. folks. So Wendy. Um. And then I met Chris Chris Mazetz, who was her uh, one of her brokers in her office, and uh, got signed up as an agent with. Uh, Majestic Realty, which was Wendy's company at the time, and uh, worked with her for a while until she closed the brokerage when the crash came. Okay, I was that must have been before she was KW agent, right? She was not a KW agent at the time. She yeah. was herself, yeah, out in Clarkston with a deer. What year did you start? Two thousand and five. I started. I think I was first licensed in 06, though. But I bought my first investment property in 05. Okay. Um. This yeah, you're a little was, different because you started as an agent, and then did you immediately get into investing, or or what did that what did that look like? Oh no, I, I was I got an agent's license just because uh, um, I I thought it would give me more access to uh, to the market, um, but I never was a traditional real estate agent. I was an investor from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had my first duplex, my first property. I actually moved in downstairs, ran it out the upstairs uh, in 2005, the same year my daughter was born, and then I just stuck with it. Where do you remember where that duplex was? Or yeah, it was a ninety-five twenty-four Cherist in Hamtramck. All right, Hamtramck. Yeah, bet you wish you kept that, huh? Uh, no. Sell for a good price? No, no, no we lost that one. So what happened was, <laughs> I got in the market at the peak of the market, and yeah, that me one too. was one hundred and ten thousand dollars of duplex there. Yeah, which uh, ended up selling at foreclosure sale for I think twenty thousand dollars. They got a good um, deal that's after I lost it. Yeah, they got a good deal. Oh yeah, and they re- they redid it and made a one family out of it. And it's still there now. But um, but basically, I was able to create a a multi million dollar empire of real estate um, against a million dollars of debt. Um, the thing is, is that when the crash came and things got rough, I spent a year and a half or two kind of scrambling and. Uh, and um dealing with the fact that uh the value spiraled down i lost through either debt equity swaps or foreclosure via lenders or for taxes all of the all of the properties all of it it was all gone but i was saddled with and left with um basically a million dollars of debt yeah now i was able to negotiate some of that down but I still pay on it to this day. As a matter of fact, Antonio Lombardo was one of those lenders. I just paid him off last fall, about a year ago. I just paid him off. I'm still making payments. Yeah. So I make payments every month. I have a couple thousand dollars a month of, of debt service or legacy costs, which is how I look at it now. And it just is what it is. But I was fortunate enough to be able to work my way out of it and not have to file a Chapter 7, Chapter 13 bankruptcy. Um and I talked to a number of different lawyers. All of them said, you know, at this point in time, you can file Chapter 7, zero asset bankruptcy and walk away from all this debt. And I'm like, yeah, or I can um, 
or I could pay it back off and uh, and not have a bankruptcy to deal with, which, you know, is it's never come up. You know, no one asked, have you ever filed bankruptcy? No one asked, can I see your credit report? You know, when you're working with lenders, they just don't. Um, my credit's still dinged, but I don't have any bankruptcies on it. But the fact of the matter is, is I pay my bills and I didn't screw anybody over like a bankruptcy would have done. Yeah. Cause it basically says, you know, fuck you to all the lenders and, and they, you get nothing. Um, so I didn't, there, there are some lenders that just walked away from the debt cause they, you know, they realized the situation was kind of, kind of hopeless. Um, but other ones stuck with it and worked with me and, uh, um, only dealt with one lawsuit. The rest of them were all, um, agreeable and understanding. You know, these are people who've been in the business. So you're dealing with other people in the business and they realize times have turned. Um, I got a pretty good response and people seem pretty happy about working with me and, uh, turning stuff around. Yeah. Not everybody realizes too, how fast the market dropped because it happened in Detroit. I won't say first, but earliest, right? One of the first markets to really, um, crash. So I moved to Detroit in May, 2007, and homes were appraising for ninety to one hundred fifty thousand dollars. And Brent and I were people who were trying to get thirty, forty percent discounts, going out, fixing them up, refining them, or selling them to investors for cash flow opportunities, selling them to homeowners. Right. So we were conservative. We were. I. I wasn't into my. Even after I refinanced a bunch of my houses, I wasn't in any more than thirty five percent. But literally, uh, for those folks listening. When July 2007 came around, it was literally like they flipped a switch. Lenders numbers didn't work anymore. All the appraisals come back low. Like every, it was like hitting a wall at a hundred miles an hour is what it felt like. And then it seemed like to trickle out to the rest of the nation, 2008, 2009, but it smashed here first. So even if you were conservative and you bought with lots of equity, Man, the bottom dropped out fast, like so fast. And then out of some of these rates that we had, the adjustable rate mortgages, shit like that. I didn't sign up any of that shit, but that took a lot of people out too, you know. Those arms adjust up. They were adjusting up at the time, up, up, up. So that's just a little backdrop, uh, folks. So you started in 2005. Yeah. 2006, you're doing your investment stuff, right? Yeah, I'm being, buying at the top of the market. Yeah, right. Were you doing mostly rentals? You're doing any fix and flips or... Those are all rent and holds. All buy and holds, yeah. Yeah. At that time. So you're going out raising private money, buy and hold. Private money and banks. Yeah. There were that's right. They used to be able to do that. You still can kind of now, but what'd you do when the market dropped out? How did you survive? I survived by wholesaling. Explain explain what you did. So I would find a deal um that was just basically grinding out deals and you'd ask about close percentages basically about 10 percent of the offers get uh get accepted in in a, a what i would call a shotgun offer which is basically like sending an offer to a bunch of different property owners through their agents um blind and not uh not having a a thorough inspection of the property done or getting an accurate assessment of it just kind of hammering the market that way um i also uh networked with a bunch of people working in the business at that uh that bottom feeding level of trying to find deals and um and basically pass them on to other people with money there were a lot of people with money who were smart buying then hell yeah um but they're buying it just they they were ruthless about cutting prices so i'd be lucky if i made a thousand dollars on a deal but you do three deals in a month and uh you know it's it's enough to get by for the month um but it was uh it was certainly a rough period um it was just you wasn't it, it was you and 
Because I, I, was it you and just your mom at that time, or she? She didn't have anything to do with it by that time. She was pretty much out of the game. Um, she does work back with us now in the office as a uh, account exec for a property management and, and sales clients. But, uh, but no, she had stepped aside then and just uh, wasn't doing any real estate. So it was pretty much just me. Yeah. Um, I did have some other people I worked with from time to time, but nobody stuck. I mean, it was it was a tough game. But um, there were so many deals that could be had then that uh, that we did create a lot of wealth for a lot of investors who bought properties and, and held on to them and were able to to build them up into you know rentals that are performing. Um, the thing that, about it is, is the market at that point in time had crashed to where these hundred thousand dollar houses were selling for sometimes ten thousand yeah, dollars or less or less. less. Yeah, Whereas crazy. out here, like where we are right now in this moment, we're in one of the suburbs of Detroit and houses out here. $100,000 houses out here were selling for $60,000, $50,000. I mean, they were definitely a big crash, but it was nothing like in the city. Now, these areas out here, many of them are hot. They're selling for more than their their pre-crash peak values, uh, their 0506 peaks. Uh, they're selling for more than that out here now. These markets have basically fully recovered. Whereas in in Detroit, in most of the neighborhoods in the city, you're still looking at 25 to 45, 45, 50%, but most of them 25 to 40% of pre-crash peak values. So there's a huge upside potential there, just like there is in some suburbs. But most of the suburbs are back to 80 to 120% of their pre-crash peaks. Yeah, they've most of the suburbs have bounced back. So they've bounced back, but the city hasn't bounced back yet. So it's all that fucking redlining paperwork where you can't charge enough for a shitty loan and unless it goes over 50 grand, I think that kills a lot of it. So they can figure out financing for the house worth less than 50 grand. Right. It just makes an all cash market, you know? Right. And the thing is, we're getting close to that threshold where Detroit's going to pop. Yeah. You know, there's going to be some rapid appreciation in the city. Dude, the second a, 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 a two working family can get a loan on a house less than $50,000. It's going to be double-digit appreciation. Well, then the prices will be over $50,000 anyway. Very quickly. I say within a year it would be. Yeah, I would expect strong double-digit appreciation. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty much there in many areas of the city now. It's just, um, you know, one of the things we like to do is we focus on on two different areas. One is areas that are geographically close to where we work. And number two is we like to focus on areas that are just outside the hot areas, the fringes. Um, path of progress kind of thing. Not necessarily even path of progress because that's kind of speculative, but just if you take a, if you take a look at like DOMs and, uh, and, and values in an area, DOMs being days on the market of properties that are sold. Um, you, you have very, very hot areas. And then that, then you have outside of those hot areas, areas that aren't hot. Well, in between them, you have an edge of kind of hot, warm by the edges, by the edges. Some risk in the edges, though, too, right? That's a little pioneering. I was just talking with a buddy of mine, Ron, about this the other day, and that's that's you know, that's, yeah, that's the that's the thing is where are the edges? Well, you, I think you came, you you came and presented at Renegade Detroit Investors and and said something I just fucking loved. Uh, this is Detroit. Buy ten, get eight. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's really buy, buy ten, 10 houses. Yeah, yeah, get eight. I think you said nine, and I yeah. said eight, more like eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just had a catastrophic loss on one of ours. Uh, yeah. Girlfriend and a boyfriend living in a house, a rental. Uh, uh, the, the girlfriend's other boyfriend showed up. So you had two boyfriends oh, fighting. Shit. And next thing you know, the DFD is on the way with ladder number seven and engine number 12. And uh, that's Detroit Fire Department, folks. And that was that. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're on the phone with uh, with Arcana seeing uh claim. Yep. Hey, 
If your policy doesn't get canceled, yeah, I had to claim one fire and they threatened to cancel my policy. I'm like, why the fuck do I even have this thing then if my house burns down? You know? Well, quite frankly, I, would, uh, I wouldn't have it if it weren't for two things. One is I have clients who are on the policy, so we maintain them um, for our clients. And number two is the big one is uh, liability purposes. Yeah. You have to have a liability blanket liability coverage. And the cheapest way to do that is with what we do is a uh, an investor list policy where our investors uh, are able to work with us through our master policy, which is basically makes us like a bank or a lender where we've got the master policy and they're under our master policy. So it gives them cheap insurance options to be in the city of Detroit, which can be expensive from an insurance. Standpoint. Hell yeah. Um, but it allows us to uh, offer uh, affordable insurance to our clients and have us named as additional insured, which protects everybody's interests. Yeah. So you're going around, you're wholesaling, you're grinding out deals a thousand bucks at a time. Yeah. Right. I think you said you still have the Dolphin Group or are you just all IPS Realty now? So Dolphin Group properties own some interests, but uh, no, it's pretty IPS much Realty. Done. Yeah, but, just, but at some point you'd be like, I'm going to go do this thing on my own. I'm grinding it out. You start start the Dolphin Group, right? Am I getting yeah. this in order? Is it in the correct order? Yeah. Well, that, that actually started right at the beginning. That was the investment vehicle. Okay. Was so that the was? Dolphin group, I yeah. was. Yeah. Okay. That's right. I remember it on the on the on the sheet now. Why get into property management? Why, Brent? Why? And be careful with that chair too, man. Yeah. I love to help my fellow man. Um <laughs> No, I do like You're helping people. You doing it people. for the people, Brent? Yeah, no, I do like helping people and in essence it is uh it is a uh, it is a necessary I wouldn't say a necessary evil, but it's certainly a necessary component. I believe that property management is the golden key to successful passive income from rental properties. If you don't have quality property management, you have nothing. Well, especially in the city of Detroit. But it's a it's a thankless job and it is and, a thankless job. And one of the toughest cities to be a property manager. That's why I'm um it's it's not on anybody's dream job or dream list of things to do. You know, what I want to do is uh, manage a bunch of people's property for a really low percentage rate. One of the toughest cities in the world to manage rental property. Well, one of the things we're doing now is we're offering a uh, flat rate property management at $75 a month and we offer no leasing fees. And if your property goes vacant for 30 days and is in a rent ready condition and we don't find a qualified tenant for the property, we pay the rent until we do. So you have no, no real risk from a vacancy standpoint of having loss of income. As long as no you're not a slumlord. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a property that's rent ready in order for us to yeah. do that. And we take care of all the maintenance in house. So there's no maintenance issues. Um, uh, our prices for maintenance are fair. Um, if you can find a licensed insured contractor who will do it for less, you're more than welcome to. Um, but, but no one does because no one can, we are cheaper. We are a licensed insured contractor and we are cheaper than, than anybody else out there. Um, and at $75 a month. I mean, there are other property management companies that offer flat rate services, but they don't offer the, the rental income protection guarantee and their flat rates are even higher. So how'd you get the idea to do the rental per? When you call it rental protection guarantee, is that what you're calling it? Well, I mean, you look at what, so I look at the problem and I think the entrepreneurship is basically looking at a problem and coming up with an elegant solution. The more, the bigger the problem and the more elegant solution, the better the entrepreneurship. So in this case, you've got overseas and out of market and even local property managers who want safety and security. And their biggest concern is I want to make sure my investment is performing. I want peace of mind. So how do you give them that? Well, 
if you if you slough off a lot of the responsibilities on the owner, like like having a a property management company that doesn't provide maintenance, and then not vetting your contractors and having contractors that you refer jobs to, and the contractor just goes out and uh, charges five hundred dollars for something that's a hundred dollar repair. If the investors in Australia and the contractors here and your property management company is trying to do everything from an app or virtually, it's not going to work. It just doesn't work from a maintenance standpoint. It's a big hole. So there are a lot of property management companies that are working in Detroit but are not in Detroit that are either in the suburbs or even some of them out of state that try to do property management here by contracting it out. And, uh, and How do you do route. property management out of state? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's the same way as doing property management in Detroit, but trying to run it virtually. You're just not there. Nah, not right now. If you're here, you're here, though. How do you run it from out of state, though? The same way. I don't see how you can run it the same way. If you've got contractors that work with you, and you've got a network of contractors, and you have you have your setup with banks, and where you have payments you can take online, um, if you've got local agents who will show properties. There's nothing about it that you need to be local on. You can run the business not locally. My experience, though, with property management is, especially in the city of Detroit, is you absolutely have to be hands-on and local, and you have to have a handle on maintenance. Maintenance is the key. You know, if you if you have if you have a maintenance job that spirals out of control, you can have a five thousand dollar maintenance job that's a fifteen hundred dollar job. That's a huge swing in a property that generates six thousand dollars of of net income in a year. You know, that's the difference between 12% ROI and when you look at vacancy on top of all that, a negative ROI. So you didn't answer the question. What's the question? How I don't see how anybody can do manage from out of state. I just don't, I don't see how. You use local contractors and local agents. Yeah, you still got, you still got to meet with them though. You still got to do things. Well, I was just talking with yeah. your, your buddy Steve here at the brokerage, you know, yeah. I mean, you do, you do HUD houses here. They're managed from out of state. Your asset managers aren't local. No, they, they hire, hire a local hire agency Steve to manage it, though. He's not managing it, though. That's he, just like he's um, working for them. Working for like, it's like an international investor hiring you, though, right? That's how. Then you're managing it, right? But what would be the difference if me then was doing that, or I was doing that, and had um, local contractors and local agents working? But yeah. I, my offices were were out of state. It wouldn't be any different. The difference we have, though, is I I'm local. I know where my properties are. Um, my team is, has an office in the city and we are, we're, we're local. Yeah. But why, why, why did you get in the property management? Cause I own properties that are rentals. Could, so the reason is, is because I had assets that need management. Did you try and hire your own property management companies first or you just go right into managing your own property? I never used a third party management company. No, never tried. No. Okay. Control freak or just that I can do this on my own. I don't need, I'll figure it out. I'm just curious because I never wanted to manage property. I went the other direction. I started higher. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess the why is why not. I mean, it, it's it's part of the business, and it seemed like uh, I guess control freak is part of it, but but also the uh, the necessity of it. You know, I mean, you have to either hire it out or do it yourself. Did everything else myself, with the exception of uh, swinging hammers, which I stopped doing. You know, a few years before I got into business. But, um, you know, I was on site with contractors, on site with uh, everything else. So we did our own leasing, our own uh, everything. Well, you built that property management company and that investment company. So what percentage of your clients do you think are international versus local? Do 95. you know? 
Yeah, so like almost all of them are international, right? Well, out of state or international. Yeah. More and more out of state. Like America is starting to buy Detroit more. The, it seems like the foreign markets were buying Detroit long before the other Americans they were. They were. But we're starting to get local buyers now. I have a couple of local attorneys who are buying the city now. Yeah. Well, that's how you know the, you know, when you hit the bottom, the only way you know you hit the bottom is you're coming back up, right? And then people, people jump back in. So, well, they say Jesus didn't preach in Nazareth. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you get Detroiters to buy Detroit, that's the last, the last thing, you know, the last you got, thing. When you got people across eight mile, and I don't know if you're familiar with Detroit, but Detroit is one of the most segregated cities in the nation. And Detroit proper is south of eight mile and the suburbs are north of eight mile. Um, and there are a lot of people who won't cross eight mile going, Either way, um, people in the city won't leave and go to the burbs. People in the burbs won't leave to go to the city. I have the advantage of having my office literally on the border street on the east side, not eight mile, but on the east side border on Mac. Um, so I'm able to work with both both worlds. Um, people who are afraid of uh, afraid of Detroit will come to my office, and people who are afraid of the suburbs will come to my office. <laughs> Who's so. afraid of the suburbs? Detroiters. Yeah, I don't know why. Black Lives Matter. You know, cross eight mile, get shot. I'm not saying it's a realistic thing, but it's certainly racial profiling that goes on in the burbs. You know, we talked about this at the beginning with Gross Point, you know, Gross Point Park, the Palmer team, uh, Heenan Memorial, uh, War, War Memorial. <laughs> is that what they call it? No, this is the Palmer T. Heenan Memorial Center, I think is the, uh, the city. He was the old school, uh, good old boys, uh, uh, mayor who just recently passed away. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an old school little boys network. And you know what? It is what it is. I mean, I don't have any problem with them probably because I'm a middle class, middle aged white guy. But, um, you don't think they just wanted to keep crime on the other side? Well, let me tell you a story. So I'm driving on Mac. And it's, it's a yes Saturday. or no question. I, I, you, I, if it's an antidote, I'm not interested. I mean, do you think that wanting to keep crime away from a neighborhood had any influence on that? Uh, sure. I mean, yeah, I think the mentality is to yeah. keep crime out, but I don't know how well it works. But the story, though, I'm driving down Mac, and I, I make a U-turn. I'm driving 45 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. Make a U-turn, pull up in front of my office. It's a Saturday, so I'm dressed in, like, sweatpants and a T-shirt. Cops pull up behind me. Um, they, you know, come up, and I give them my paperwork, and uh, tell them I was just pulling from the office. And they're like, okay, well, Mr. Maxwell, slow down, and, uh, um, and uh, you know, there's no U-turn here. I'm like, okay, thanks. So that's that. That same week, one of our bookkeepers, uh, Montrese, made a U- he didn't make a U-turn. He pulled up in front of the office, had expired plates on his car. Um, black guy, they arrested him. Expired plates? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't write these rules. Did you have expired plates? No. All right. Do you think that might be the difference? They're not going to arrest you for making a U-turn and, and speeding. No. Well, maybe, depending on how fast you're speeding. Well, if I was black, they would have shot me. <laughs> Every time? Every time. Why are there still black people? They're really bad at what they're doing. Well, there's only the ones left are the ones that don't drive. (laughs) It's the filtering mechanism. I don't think so. Um, No, I, you know, there's some some problems there, but, uh, you know, it's not... uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I like I said, I come at it from a middle class white perspective, so I don't know what it's like to be black and all the bullshit that they have to deal with, but I certainly know that it exists. Yeah, that's that's different though than having expired uh, plates. Um, how well, did you taxes. capture because ninety five percent out of state, out of country? Mm-hmm. That's not unimpressive, right? I mean, how did you capture that business and what was the worst market they were aware of, probably ever, but certainly and memory of a lifetime, right? 
So you're talking about the worst market ever mm-hmm. and you capture 250 plus units, all of them international and out of state, which means very comparatively speaking, very little face to face, right? So a lot of over the phone, a lot of text, a lot of Skype, a lot of email, mostly email. Yeah. How did you, how do you, how'd you win that? How'd you win their business? Cause that, that's kind of impressive. So I know we provide a good product, um, which is the, the houses and the, the apartments that we sell. Um, but those those clients are almost all purchasers of properties who ended up managing through us. We didn't offer management service out to the public until just recently, and we've done zero marketing on it. Hmm. Um, like a word of mouth thing. It is. Yeah. It's a word of mouth and and working. So we're about to about to blast it out there. I mean, we've got a product that's better than anyone in the market has for Detroit property management. And uh, I just cleaned house recently. I uh, split with my business partner and had a buyout there um, and fired a number of staff. We went from 15 to five, and now we're back at six. Mm. Um, but um, I got rid of uh I didn't know that, you had a partner. Yes. Okay. Can you? I, I, I don't even know. I don't say anything you're not comfortable saying, but I thought you did it all on your own. Was it like a partner oh, partner I think or like I, a money no, partner I, no, it wasn't a money partner it was someone in the office but i think that by and large in hindsight i pretty much did do it all on my own with the help of you know the people that were working with me um my partner was working against me so yeah that's not going to work then no yeah. it didn't and i cleaned it out i yeah. cleaned it out and cleaned out all the wreckage of it and that was what i spent the last couple months doing i'm still dealing with the the fallout of that but expect to have everything cleaned up again by the end of uh by the end of September was the uh, target date. We actually had a date, uh, had a couple met, um, milestone dates of uh, of September 1st, uh, which we hit our milestone. We were going to try and hit by September 1st. We actually hit on August 7th or something like that. So, I mean, the cleanup is, is going very well. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about it? Don't answer anything you're not comfortable with, but I think this is like golden opportunity, right? Because this shit happens in business, right? Yeah. You're going one direction. You do an assessment and you realize either I don't like it, this is not working, or some combination of both, right? right. Yeah. And then you got to make some tough fucking decisions, right? These were tough fucking decisions. Uh, they're, they're never good, right? Especially when you got to let people go. Stressful, that, painful. It's terrible, you know, and some of these people you've known for some time, right? I fired someone this last week, and I, I said afterwards, I said, you know, I said, um, you know, Mitt Romney likes firing people, and Donald Trump likes firing people. I do not like firing I people. I don't like firing people. I look at it as... um as a sad event it is you know for everybody involved it, well because it's a failure and it didn't work out right i mean that is sad yeah that's certainly part of it i mean it's just it's not where you're you don't enter the relationship with the intention of having it go there no well that's why i want to talk about. how did you without getting into specific details or mentioning specific names especially if you don't want to how did you come to the decision to make the change? And then how did you implement the change? Cause I actually literally just got some Facebook messages around something very similar. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to build a process driven systems driven business that relies on the mechanism and the machine to run uh, well with, with humans being a part of it and being the operators, but basically having the system being a process driven business procedural, um, right? Yes. Yeah. So there are processes in place. I'm getting a lot of flack and a lot of resistance on getting processes in place and getting them documented is just extremely difficult because the people I'm working with don't want this to happen. 
And there's a number of reasons why. Any of them good? Any of the reasons why they don't want them to happen are good? Yeah. Were there no. any of them good? No, it's just it's... Like a fear of change kind of thing? No, or? this is a shining light on a cockroach, and it's going to run for cover kind of thing. Ah, okay. So there's some nepotism going on and uh, and and basically some bad contractor stuff going on. We had um, um, my partner's um, family member was doing uh, some construction work for us and uh, and had some, uh, some issues with uh, construction that were just completely subpar. And trying to get that handled and dealt with was really difficult. That could be messy. Not yeah. a problem now. No, yeah. You know? But I mean, not just that contractor, but a number of contractors. I and mean, I've got so many contractor horror stories from the years. Not oh, just yeah. ones that I've done with myself, but ones that I've experienced, you know, third party. Um, everything from contractors painting bathtubs as opposed to glazing them, which means that they look good in pictures and they look good in the, and when the showing happens. But as soon as someone moves in and starts using that bathtub, it does not stand up at all. You know, yeah. you get, uh, you know, um, you get someone who kind of stands up and you've got uh, someone with dark skin who's got white paint all over their back. Yeah. Like fucking skunk. Um, that doesn't work. No. Carpet with no padding underneath it. Well, as a carpet salesman, I can tell you that padding isn't just there to pad the feet. It's there actually as part of the carpet's functional mechanism. If you don't put padding under carpet, the carpet gets destroyed in a matter of months. And that's what happens. Um, yeah, that corner cutting fucking pisses me off. Massive corner cutting it's like and, pennies and, they're they're corner cutting pennies and it and, and it can't last forever it's going to be obvious in a few short months right well here's the thing though you're, you're flipping them on your you're burning your clients on the flips but also and then you've got property management you've got clients who are like well i want you to have the whole place carpeted and painted and ready for rent and i have 1200 budget I'm like 1200 is going to get you carpet yeah barely you know? like you got a you got a four thousand dollar turn you know i mean it is what it is so and it's not always that. Sometimes it's sometimes it's just a couple hundred dollars. Sometimes it's more. But I mean, having a vacant property and turning it is an expensive process. You want to avoid it as much as possible and work with your tenants as much as possible and do some screening and pick the best possible tenants. But there's always going to be issues, which is why I recommend buying more than one property because you've got other ones to carry you when ones are ones are defective or have issues. Safety in numbers. That's there is safety in numbers, especially in the city of Detroit. When it if you're going to buy one rental, buy that shit in Royal Oak or someplace like or in that. a premier year of Detroit. Right. You know, yeah. we've got properties in East English Village available in, in the 50s and 60s and even in the 40s. You know, these are neighborhoods where they're stable. You know, it's Detroit, but it's a strong neighborhood. Um, and there's still great deals. These are $150,000 plus houses pre-crash that you're getting for forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars $60,000. It's a fabulous deal. And these are ones that comp out and have comps being comparable sales in the neighborhood of comparable properties. Um, that comp out for ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars more. So you get instant equity on the buy. I've got a number of properties available in East English Village right now and in other nice neighborhoods of Detroit. Um, the ROIs aren't as high though. Your returns are going to be, you know, 10, 15%, maybe even some cases a little bit less, yeah. but you're going to get your return. Whereas if you go for a 20, 25, 30% property, you're going to get your return when you do, but when you don't, you're going to have to put some money into it to make it perform at that level. And it's, it's tough. It's difficult. safety in numbers because like some will kill it, some will go to shit, and some will barely eke by. But those numbers are huge if you have, and I would, I will emphasize a tolerance for risk. Yeah. If you don't have that tolerance for risk, that is not a strategy. But you here's should, why uh, I have a tolerance for risk. I'll tell you about the El Morado apartments 32 units. 
I purchased it in September of 2015. I paid a $5,000 finder's fee to uh, the broker who brought it to me. Um, paid $115,000 for the property. Put about $75,000 into the property over the next six months. Uh, got it under contract and closed on it nine months later. Uh, sold it. I had about $200,000 into it. Paid some overseas brokers and had some splits with some partners on it. But all told, it sold for $745,000, I believe. Yeah, seven forty-five was the final sales price. So there's a five hundred and forty-five thousand dollar profit on a two hundred thousand dollar investment, and in, in the time it takes to make a baby. Well, not the time it takes to make a baby for the woman, not for me. <laughs> so um, yeah, but not your, your somebody from overseas could, is unlikely to be able to do that, right? Or well, it's out of arbitrage. States. You know, yeah. I'm here, so I'm able to take advantage of that. Arbitrage is, is the appropriate word, right? You know, I mean, but I can I flip those deals all the time. I mean, there was an arbitrage sense. We didn't sell it for seven forty five to the Chinese. The Chinese sold it to the Chinese for seven forty five. We sold it to the Chinese for five hundred thousand. But there's still hundreds of thousands, like more than 100% profit to all the investors and partners and commissioned people on it. I mean, my payday on that was, was a six-figure payday for me. Like That's what I took home in one day. And that wasn't my only deal to close last June. No, but... But there's risk involved. Well, you had we losses, a, too. We, we yeah. took a, I don't have that many losses. We took a limping building, and I like them limping. I like them, especially when they have multiple units. I like them where they have... 50% or less occupancy and performance where where they have the potential performing for, say, $70,000 a year in gross rents, but they're performing at $15,000 a year. I do not like them that size dead. Um, it's it's simply it's better to have them limping. So you go in and you clean out the bad apples, clean up the property, put in good tenants, and create cash flow. This is something I'm good at. I like doing it. Yeah. So... I mean, I've done it more than once on more than one occasion on, on buildings where I've taken them and they've been not stable and stabilized them, managed them, and then flipped them for a profit. You should do more of those. I do. Yeah. Yeah. You got any more cooking? I do. All right. Yeah. No apartments at the moment, but I'm always looking. Yeah. They're fun. Yeah, that those are fun. That's a lot of work though, I'll tell you. Well, yeah, that that's why I was pointing but out. But the thing is it's not a lot of work for me from my perspective and from the person who wants to do this and do what I do. You know, the property management, I have a property management company. I'm involved in the management on a day-to-day basis, but I don't do the property management. I don't even broker the deals on the sales side anymore. I have agents who sell. I don't do the construction. I just find the deals and make sure the plates keep spinning. That's, that's the way to do it. I'm going to circle back around, though, because I want to get back to this conflict. Um, I think it's important. So you wanted to bring order and procedures and a machine to your business, and you were getting friction, some sort of nepotism, that kind of thing. Yeah. So I did an audit. Yeah, okay. That's what I was going to say. And I looked at all of the work orders that were done in the month of June, and there's a process in place whereby – the contractor's charges need to be on the on the work order. What's billed to the client needs to be on the work order. Photos of the property before and after need to be on the work order when a work order is closed out. I pulled randomly 40 work orders from that month. Out of the 40, guess how many were done according to process correctly? 
I don't even want to know. Zero. Exactly. Shit. You're the only person who's ever guessed that. Fuck. Either. Zero for 40. Then I looked at rent ready and I looked at the 12 properties that were delivered that were supposedly rent ready and available for rent. And I talked and I had an agent do an assessment on them. And she said, you know what? This one has this punch list. This one has this punch list. This one has punch list. Out of the 12, how many were rent ready? Zero. Zero. How do I fucking know? <laughs> then during the course of this audit, I looked up and found that, uh, that there were some insurance irregularities where properties that were on our insurance through the company that my partner owned privately were being run through the company insurance but weren't being billed. That's not good. No. No. So that was an easy decision at that point. How did the... Because there's some liability. How did the conversation go? Because how do you? Because I think a lot of people are like, how do I? How do I have this conversation? Right? It's time to cut. But in your case, they're embedded, right? How do you manage that process? How did you get from point A to point Z? Well, I think there's a lot of guilt and stuff going on the other side. I mean, I asked for a split, and I said, "This isn't working. This is not okay." I didn't go to details. I didn't go over it. But um, and we just had a heart heart meeting the Friday before, and this happened over the weekend on Monday. I said, you know what? I need this. This we need to. My partner didn't come to work that day. I said, you know what? We need to split this. This doesn't work. It's not working, and you you need to go. Ran and hide, so didn't even come to work. Knew basically what was going to happen, right? Well, I mean, they created it. Yeah, self fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, and he was even said, I knew this was going to happen. Well, I'm like, oh, it wasn't my intention to have it happen. My intention was to clean this mess up and have it work right. Yeah. You know, you saying I knew this was going to happen created that, like, you made this happen because you knew it was going to happen. Mm. You know, so you just, well, you just went quick, just ripped that Band-Aid right off. No. Yeah, I said, let's, let's get together on Friday and let's uh, talk terms and, and strike a deal. So we got together and not that Friday, the following week. Um, and I came to it and said, what do you want to do? And we made the deal and. That was it. Wrote it up and cut it. Cut it. It was done. How hard was it to negotiate the deal? Not hard. Not hard. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're dealing with someone who's, um, I mean, there's a technical term for someone who runs private expenses through a through a shared business. I'm not sure what that term is. Uh, I think we don't we call that. I'm not going to say it. Some word there. I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, you got that going on, plus the the guilt and the knowledge of all the bullshit that was going on. And over the last couple months, just seeing it without even looking for it, just cleaning up and, and dealing with it, the amount of crap that was going on was excessive. Yeah. So. Well, the worst part is it kind of creates a culture of that, too, right? It did. That's yeah. why we had to clean out everybody. So you, with a few exceptions. You, so you had to go through and part with a partner, and then you had to turn your eyes to your employees, right? Mm-hmm. How did you manage that process? Just go through, start cutting, or yeah, no, that was a little more difficult. But yeah, I was go through and just basically uh, have conversations and uh, and let some people go. Did you, ever, did you find out anybody knew and didn't say anything? Yes. Yeah, fuck that. I had that happen to me, too. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Like, people knew what was up and just let it go. And yeah, I, I, I can never understand that. You, you, you're guaranteeing you're not going to have a job when somebody figures that out. So I always We'll check wanna... it out, though. This whole pro, the whole the thing was brought to my attention by a couple of the employees. Oh, good for them. One of them who said, okay, well, I said that now. I guess I might not have a job tomorrow. I mean, they knew that uh, that it was a pretty ballsy move to. Uh, I mean, you got a partnership, and you got some newer employee who says, "Hey, your partner's kind of fucked up." Yeah, um, that is dangerous. That's dangerous territory. But you know, fortunately, this person had. Uh, you want to be on the side the of right, though. If you're well, right, I mean, right is right. You know, yeah. and you know what? Look, I I completely applaud it. You're in a position where you see something is wrong, and you you want to be in an organization where right is right, and and things work well. 
And you want to be in an organization where you're doing something you can be proud of. And we are, and that's where we're at now. And this person took the initiative to say, you know what, this isn't okay, and I'm not okay with it, so I want you to be aware of it. I'm like, really? Because it was all kept pretty hidden from me, and I tried to make changes of it, and I got all kinds of resistance. No, no. I want you to run all the work orders through me, and we'll close them out. I want to close out all the work orders. No, no, that's just going to create more work for me, and you're just going to turn it back on me. No, 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 no. So I did my own digging and doth protest too much, I think, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Lady Macbeth had blood all over her hands, and that was that. Yeah. I mean, every time. I mean, literally. How does me doing your work make more work for you? You're going to have to rethink your argument. Yeah. <laughs> that literally, that literally does not add up at all. At the uh, at the coffee shop, there was uh, the documents were written up. And uh, we closed the deal then and there. Back, uh, I'll show them to you right here. Of course, you can't see them on the podcast, but uh, maybe you can describe it. Well, it's just a handwritten uh, yellow legal pad uh, dissolution of interest. Man, you know? that's some old school shit right there. Well, I was coached by uh, one of my attorneys who. Uh, I do have a pretty powerful team I work with of people that uh that uh I like trust and respect and and pay well for their uh for their assistance but uh this particular attorney um coached me on the phone on the way to the meeting and uh said you know that when Bo Schembuckler was making his deal with Tom Monahan to be the president of operations for the Detroit Tigers you know they memorialized the agreement on a napkin you know, at a at a coffee shop or a restaurant. I didn't know that. He said so that just, really happened. He said just write. Yeah, this is what I heard. You know, from the attorney. He said just write it up. He said use this language. You know, and uh, include these things in here. So I had him. I wrote it up, and then I called him and I read it over him on the phone. While I was there, and then we both signed it, and that was that. But yeah, I mean, you're in a position where you fucked up and you're guilty. You know, you're going to agree to to walk away pretty easily, or you're going to fight and be stupid about it. Fortunately, this person wasn't, so I have you know a lot of respect for that. You know, um, it really helped uh, the client base. You know, by by providing a, an easier exit because attention was able to focus on cleaning up the mess then, as opposed to fighting. Yeah, probably. So I appreciate that. Well, you also move with speed too. If you move with speed, people don't have time to think or plan and all that. I'm, I, that, I think the speed thing worked to your advantage a lot, right? There wasn't much warning. You dug into it. You figured it out pretty quick because it was blatant. And then you moved with speed to to solve the problem. And there just wasn't wiggle room. That was like the opposite of what I did. I drug that shit out fucking forever. And it gave people all sorts of room to come up with ideas and hide shit. Yeah. You and, did go through a pretty rough spell there. Of yeah. Some, uh, some interesting things there. I will never, if you're listening to this, I will never forgive the motherfuckers who knew and didn't tell me as far as I'm concerned, that was the end where you got the notice. You probably did. You probably figured it out. But if you knew and you didn't say anything, my opinion of you is incredibly low. So that's why I was applauding the person who had the guts, especially a new employee. That's some scary shit to go tell a boss, by the way, X, Y, and Z, and I'm probably going to have to go find another fucking job because that's usually what happens when you do something like that. Well, not with me. I mean, I'm I'm not that guy. Yeah. I mean, I uh, I took it to heart and did some investigating and had some conversations, and uh, it took a little longer than it should have. I mean, it was basically a month-long process, but... No, that's that. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's, no, no. So now you cut everybody and yes. how sometimes you have to cut everybody. Although you, did you keep anybody? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
how are you building the culture moving forward? Because that's always the, the the tricky part, right? You, you you cut out the bad, and now you need to move the culture forward um, with procedures and all that. Did you just say, look, it's this or the highway, or how, how well, did the you people move? on board are all about you know process? And so I restructured the business before we had the property management was done by a couple of back office people in property management. And I said, you know what? The problem missing here is you've got the back office people doing the property management. Who's who's acting on behalf of the client? Mm. So what I did is I took my top salespeople and put them on salary and plus bonuses and commissions for, for sales, but basically said, I want you to be account executives for our property management clients and gave them a client list and said, these are your clients and your job is to be their account executive and work on their behalf and help them make sure that they understand what's going on with their property, that the property is managed properly, and you're basically their their eyes and ears here in the company and in Detroit for these for these investors. That's been an, I mean, it's expensive. Don't get me wrong; it costs a lot of money to have these people doing this, but but the the model of having account executives manage. Um, and they're not involved in any of the accounting, any of the contracting, any of the back office stuff. They simply work with the client and communicate with the office. And they're the client's point of contact. It's just, it's, it's an amazing shift in, in, in paradigm and, and model. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know who I can credit that one to other than me coming up with it because <laughs> that was, a, I like it. You know, it seems to be working really well. I've got basically a sales rep working with property management clients directly with them and they've got their own client list so in addition to helping them with with their um their properties any new properties that come up that get to be sold they get offered first you know existing clients get first shot at stuff i like that model yeah gives a little incentive too right right unlike most property management companies you know first of all we do all our contracting in-house secondly we do um all our client bases, basically clients who bought through us or through people that we bought, sold through. We work with a lot of overseas brokers. But and at the end of the day, these people need management, so we're the management company. Yeah, it's a different take on it. You're more like, um, you're more vertically integrated, right? That's yes. a, that's a different, um, there's kind of two ways to do it. Either vertically integrated or you're specialized, you know? Specializations for insects. One thing you said about um, earlier about why property management is because it is part of that vertical integration, and it is the key to being a successful real estate investor. It just is. There's no way around it in Detroit. You have to have quality property management. And there are 101, maybe 1,001 property management companies in Detroit. How do you know which one to pick? I can tell you right now, on my hand, I can't count for every finger I've got, I can't count that many good property managers in Detroit that I'm aware of. Two, and I'm sitting across of one. That's so. There's yeah. another company who who does quality property management, but doesn't provide maintenance services, and they're a startup, and they they certainly have their heart in the right place and are good kids, but uh, they got some 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 experience issues, and also the structure of it. You have to be able to provide maintenance. They need to add that component. That'll definitely improve them. I'd like to see them be more successful because competition improves the market. I'm not I'm not against it in any way. Um, and then there used to be one that did a lot of property management in the city, but the old man retired and he was the key player. It was not as much a systems driven as it was an old school family kind of business. And yeah, I miss, is, I miss Larry. His kid is uh, a fucking shithead. Man. That guy, <laughs> I've never met the guy fuck that guy. I've heard stories and they involve eight mile. <laughs> oh my God. I could tell you, I called a, you can never figure out what was going on. 
You could never figure it. They they had this stupid portal that they never updated anything in. You could never log in. Your login was always changing. And I sent all my clients there, and I literally had to call to figure out what was going on. I remember the last conversation we had. I called. I'm like, well, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I got what's going on. He's like, Well, I don't know. Why do you expect me to know? That's literally the words that come out of his mouth. And I just came fucking unglued. To this day, he hates my guts and talks shit about me. Well, should I say good? Because I do the same thing in uh, in reverse. Yeah. So no. Yeah. When Larry left, I was that was some sad shit, man. That ruined that ruined me. I was never able after that to have quality. Um, and that hurt my operation too. After that, my biggest pain in my ass was trying to find good property management and I never quite solved it. I ended up with some sort of hybrid where I qualified and placed the tenants and I put them with someone qualified at accounting and collecting checks and kicking people out of houses, which was not what I wanted to do because I no. never wanted to be in property management. Unlike you. Well, I didn't really want I wanted to, to sell just, shit and I had to get in the property some bit of at least tenant placement in order to keep my clients happy and keep uh, rent coming in, you know? There might be another one. Yeah, I don't know. No? Okay. <laughs> Debatable. All right. Well, I mean, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but no, we've had our issues with that. I mean, we, we switched from an old system to a new system now. We were working with uh, a company called uh, Propertyware, which provides property management uh, software and accounting services. Um, which is um, yeah a fan of I I absolutely cannot stand no. property wear from a from a personal perspective I know there are people that love it and more power to them you know there are people that uh, there are people that love just about everything and this is one of them I just don't like the uh, I don't like using the software it's not a good fit for me I have a, a new software company we actually have <laughs> we interviewed all of the property management softwares um, uh, because part of the thing with the process driven is we need a process that works for us and that makes sense. So we're now using Appfolio, which is a direct competitor with Buildium, which is something people like, but Appfolio came in a little bit better. Um, they've got some issues with customer service as far as using a ticket-based system as opposed to a call-in system, which I don't particularly like. But other than that, the software is uh, pretty robust and very user-friendly and very client-friendly. And I'm extremely happy with. We looked at the possibility of having our own software app developed, um, but Appfolio does everything we need to do, and it's a, a bigger company that has a lot better support. Um, so, at least from a you know the ticket base is difficult, but the actual support that's provided is is, is deep, um, and the service is excellent. So uh, we have now new portals that we're opening up. Um, that they allow our clients to log in 24-7 and see the activity on their account. Um, in most cases, any open work orders that need approval and uh, their statement for the month is up, uploaded that way. Um, and it's it's just a great way to utilize technology uh, in, in the advantage of the, uh, the property management client. We use that to handle work orders, uh, maintenance, and all of our property management accounting. In addition to that, we utilize QuickBooks for business accounting. And then internally, we use HubSpot, which is a really expensive uh, CRM and marketing platform, uh, which we underutilize the power on it, but it's got metrics and reporting, uh, full CRM functionality, uh, a sidebar that links in with your Gmail business account, which we use. Um, we use Basecamp for project management. Anything I love Basecamp project multitask. Management. We're using yeah. Basecamp three. It's got some shortcomings that Basecamp two didn't have that has, but um, we're just waiting on the uh, the update of templates, which is really the thing that we need there, and the ability to do uh, repeating tasks. Um, yeah, I never are, knew why they couldn't do that. Well, they will. It'll they be done will. This year. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then for personal use, I use um, I use um, 
Evernote for my own research. Yes. Uh, anything I want to keep, I keep on Evernote, including business cards. And uh, I also use Todoist, which is a uh, a personal task manager. Now, HubSpot has task management in it. I'm just not that happy with the way it works. So, but we use, like I said, we use Basecamp for project management. So we have a number of platforms that we use and utilize. Um, uh, that were some of them were part of the company before, but some of them have just been brought on recently. Like the base camp's only from the last couple of months. But you know, when you're doing a turn on a rehab, property management software isn't really enough to handle multiple contractors and the the task management required for rehabbing a property. Um, you could use something like uh, like MS Project, I think it's called, which is more of an old school thing. Well, with a massive learning curve. But the thing is, it's not just me. I'm okay with any learning curve, but I don't want a I don't want a massive learning curve because it seems like kind of a waste of time when you've got something so simple and intuitive like a Basecamp or there are some other ones Asana I think is another version of a software that's similar project management. Um, we also use something called Time Doctor for billable hours and and making sure that we're on track with that. So uh, technology and utilizing technology property properly for property management and construction management and um, project management. And deal management and deal flow. And we use a Kanban board through HubSpot, which is fabulous. All our lead tracking is done that way. Um, the thing is, is when you take everything out of your head and put it into software, you take all of those open loops in the brain and you close them. Yeah. So what's left is, is an empty mind, a tabula rasa, you know, a beginner's mind where you can actually be able to focus on issues that come up without having to remember things. I don't remember, and with Google Apps as well, with the calendar, I use calendar for daily reminders of things that need to be done that day and for appointments. Um, but if it's a task, it gets assigned to Todoist or to Basecamp. Uh, if it's involving multiple people or multiple steps. Um, if it's a deal, it runs through HubSpot. Uh, if it's property management work order, it runs through Appfolio. Uh, and all of these systems are being put into place and being implemented with the team. And I've got some true Luddites on the team um, who are anti-technology <laughs> and old school, you know, pencil and paper people. And you know what? You use the right software and provide the right training. And it's not that hard to take someone, even someone who is from you know the baby boomer generation and is anti-technology and get them to come on board because if you have the right software and the right process in place they they adapt and they join so if you make somebody's life easier and they could do their job better faster they're gonna do it yep you just have to be able to do that and if you can't do that they're not gonna adopt it period end of report also base camp folks uh you're probably not going to design a car with it we're not designing cars, you know, that's, that was a problem I had with most project management software. So shit was so fucking complicated to use, you know, you got the net chart and you don't really need that for your average rehab. And that maybe for your apartment, you might have, cause that's a lot of units to go through, but it's not that hard to rehab a house and put that together. And it just, it's for me, it was a lot easier. It made it manageable. You didn't have to learn everything about project management. You just need to know enough to get started, and Basecamp's pretty pretty simple and straightforward to use. Well, Basecamp integrates very well with Google Sheets, yeah. You know, which is a spreadsheet similar to Excel, um, which is what we use internally. So, if you've got something and you want to use a spreadsheet on it, you can put that into Basecamp and have it integrated. Uh, it's not uh, it's not difficult to make that connection. Yeah. So what what do you um 
What are you working on right now, man? Finishing cleaning up the property management and then getting ready to focus on some more uh, some more rehabs and some more deals. I mean, that's the fall of 2016 is all about uh, about finding deals, and uh, I really like to add value. I'm not I'm not big on the wholesaling thing, which is straight up an arbitrage thing. It's taking advantage of the position you're in and then being able to offer people who don't have that same positioning. And I think it's fabulous, and it's a great way to get into the business, and it's a great way to make money in the business without using any of your own money, or in this case, any of anybody else's money, because you're just taking your time and locking up deals and then passing those deals on to other people. Um, and as long as you're ethical about it and disclose to the, the people that you're working with that that's what you're going to be doing, I don't have a problem with it at all. I think it's great. It provides a great service. I buy most of my deals from wholesalers. Yeah. Um, but, uh, cause they're good at finding deals. They are good yeah. at finding deals. You know, yeah. I mean, my whole thing is I, you know, I, I got into the business cause I'm the kind of person that likes to do everything myself. But the thing is, is you don't become very successful if you try and do everything yourself. Now, if you're going to be a, a good wholesaler, it's a full-time fucking gig, man. You got to be doing it all day, every day to, to, to really find a lot of deals. You know, I'd rather pay a wholesaler, you know, a thousand, two thousand, five thousand, ten thousand, whatever the number is. It doesn't really matter because I don't really even need to know what their number is. I just need to know that the deal that they're bringing to me makes sense for me. You know, so I don't even ask them what they make because I don't care. You know, it shows up in the HUD or the final statement, but I've had wholesalers who make five, ten thousand dollars on a deal. You know, I mean, I don't have an issue with that. If the deal's good enough and it makes sense for me and works on my numbers, then you get paid, and that's great. I want you to get paid. You know, that's that's how I get good deals is because you get good deals, and you make money is why you will go out and do it. So yeah, bring me good deals. Um, you know, the other things we're looking for is private money from investors who want to join and joint venture on stuff. I'm not really interested in borrowing, but I like to partner with people on deals. Um, my partners who who put up small amounts of cash, fifty, hundred thousand dollars on that El Morado apartment deal, they walked away with six figures themselves on the payday. You know, now not every deal is a home run like that, but they pretty much all are winners. You know, every once in a while, one is a loser, but I tell you, 19 out of 20 of them are winners. Yeah, you got to lose every once in a while you lose, but the longer you're in the game, the less you lose. You know, know? I've lost before because mainly the reason I lost before is either because of issues with bad contractors, um, Detroit theft, or time. Some deals are so tight that time can kill you. If you have a deal with a... Uh, six months of carrying costs on money and six months of carrying costs on management, six months of carrying costs on insurance and six months of carrying costs on taxes. Yeah. Um, that's a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Percent a month. It adds up sometimes a little bit more than a percent a month. It adds up fast. That's one thing that people don't understand. And I walk my sellers through this and go 35%. That's a big discount. You go, well, I'm going to use a real estate agent. 6%. I'm going to have to rehab it. Holding costs are going to be at least 1% a month. People don't consider the damage time does to their deal if they're, if they're not on top of it and they don't know, right? To right. your point, six months could kill a deal or make a deal, right? Yeah. yeah. Depends on which six month, what side of it you're on, right? If you're at the end of the six months about ready to lose your ass, the person puts on their contract just got a deal. <laughs> I've been exciting. on both sides of that. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're looking at now, though, is taking in and looking at those uh, those deals that are on the edge of the hot zones or in areas that are near our office that we like. Um, and uh, basically buying and rehabbing and creating long-term holds or short-term flips, um, either way. So uh, investors who want to buy long-term holds, we've got the properties and we've got the management in place. Investors who want to be part of a deal that's flipped in a short period of time, uh, the returns can sometimes be more lucrative. Um, in many cases, they are, and that's something that we've got available. Uh, then investors who have deals that they want to find and sell or properties to sell, we've got that. 
and also property management. Property management is exciting when you do it right. Um, and that's something that, that we've never been able to have until just recently where we really had good property management and now we're about to offer it to the world. $75 a month, no leasing fee and guaranteed rent if the property goes vacant. No one has anything like that. And why? Because you have to have your shit together in order to be able to offer that or you're going to get killed. Yeah. I like that it has to be a rent-ready condition because that forces the investor to make the investment to get it rentable. I think that's the that's the key to your, your thing right there. Is, well, that's the thing with most overseas yeah. investors is that a lot of them get into it and they're sold a false bill of goods from whoever brokered the deal to them. And a lot of these investors are paying, I'm selling a property for $45,000 to an overseas broker who then turns around and sells it for $70,000 to their client. Sometimes more. They make a killing on that deal. I maybe make a couple thousand dollars on that deal. Okay. We actually worked trying to sell some of those deals ourselves directly. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to do this. I want to sell these deals directly to the clients overseas, but with a fair overseas brokerage charge. It's just too expensive. Hard to do. Yeah. I went, I went through seven when I was doing it. I went through several of them. It's just, and there's just so many bad players that, it, um, it kind of polluted the, the marketplace a little bit. It's not nearly as bad now as it used to be. It's harder to hide, um, but that'll probably change as the market continues to swing up, too. Works both ways, right? Well, the advantage now is we have more more Americans, more local people, Detroiters and Americans, um, yeah. uh, United States of America, not, no offense to uh, Mexico, uh, Guatemala, Costa Rica, yeah. Canada, the Inuit. North Americans, I guess. Yeah. So when Americans. I say American, uh, colloquially, I mean United States of America, yeah. <laughs> Colin Kaepernick's America. That's what I'm talking about when I say America. Send all no, your hate no mail to, to yes. Brent at IPS. Send all your hate mail to San Francisco 49ers <laughs> in search of a new quarterback because our sucks for reasons, including the fact that he yeah. has some political issues. Yeah, I don't and, care about his political issues. Stop I, sucking at football. You know what? I think that that's, there's a time and a place for everything, you know? So I just can't even care at all. Like I don't like I don't even know. Everybody's all flipping out. I just it's literally not like can't Sandy Koufax saying I'm not going to play because it's fucking Yom Kipper. Yeah, I don't care. This is some of you saying, you know. Yeah, who there's cares? an obscure verse in, a, in the song that we're singing here that that no one knows. No one knows except those who are really digging for shit. So I'm therefore conflating that to mean that this song and everyone who's singing it and the country it's attached to is bullshit. You know what? You're fucking playing in a monopoly league that's exempt from um u.s restrictions on monopolies and what's the act called the uh well that what is the is it what, fucking taft uh something i can't remember yeah it's uh anti-monopoly yeah yeah what was it's that? antitrust yeah the antitrust so i mean it's exempt from that um you're also dealing with you know panamet circuses bread and circuses you know in in a country where we are, in essence, an empire, and you've got uh, you've got real issues going on. I mean, while we're having this conversation, talking about property management and uh, and rentals in Detroit, you know, some wedding in Pakistan got bombed, or Pakistan, if you're from the old school like me, um, got bombed, and uh, you know, somebody's lost a family. Um, while we're worried about uh, some millionaire whining about. Uh, about issues that uh, that sure maybe are legitimate and real and affect some people, but basically, the United States uh, national anthem is about war. It's not about slavery. Yeah. Well, and 
so low on the list of things I give a fuck about that uh, I can't I can't even like rise to a level of giving a fuck about it. Like I don't even give a shit. Well, we're middle class white men. Yeah, no, I, I, little, I mean it is what it is. You know, hey, speak for yourself. I identify as black, Brent, and that's allowed. So I'm a middle class black man. You didn't know that? Well, you're all black on the inside, <laughs> where it counts. Until someone cut you open. We all walked out of Africa, right? If you go back far enough, but I don't think that's what they're talking about. You don't think so? No. No. <laughs> no, we're all African, sure, genetically. There uh, we go. Yeah. yeah, we're all we're all brothers and sisters, morons. So what does the future hold for Brent? The farther away from the equator you go, the lighter your skin is if you stay there for generations. If you yeah. look at a map and a distribution of skin tone versus, versus uh, location geographically, you'll see that the closer the equator you get, the darker your skin is. And the farther away from you get, the lighter your skin is. Brent, that's, that's, that's crazy talk. I was made this way by my all-loving creator, okay? Quit Perhaps, to tell but me he otherwise. made everybody that way based on distance from the equator. Why? Why not? All right. What does the, the future hold for Brent? Uh, at this point in time, you know, Detroit is on the comeback. We are in a we are in a boom town at a boom time, and uh, I'm going to ride the wave. How long do you think it'll go? What goes up must come down. Always does. Yeah, there'll be bumps, but I think that the I think that the uh, the September fifteenth, two thousand eight, uh, Black Day of uh, of the big crash and, and Bear Stearns and Lehman and all the other big guys going down and the housing bubble and all that stuff. I think this is a once in a lifetime event for me. Unfortunately, there will be other, yeah, there will be other bubbles. I like bubbles. I think they work well in the game that we play this monopoly that we play. Um, the thing about it is if a bubble pops, you need to either get out before it pops. If you're lucky or, and have foresight, or if you're not lucky and have foresight or don't act on it, when the bubble pops, you need to parachute out fast, large cash reserves, take your, take your losses and save your cash and then help people buy on the way down and, and, and do some, uh, some uh some bear market, uh, sales on the way down. And, uh, and then when it hits bottom, just churn them and wait for the emergence again. I mean, it's cyclical. You know, I've seen it. I've been through, like I said, the worst one I'll probably see in my lifetime. And, um, this is metal and I'm not sure what this is. Yeah. I don't know. It looks like wood though. No, it is wood. It's wood. It's just a welded it. It is wood, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. It's really light fiber there. <laughs> like it came the out of Detroit it. house. It was Jim Schaefer bottom. It came out of Detroit house. Really? Yeah. Right. I think it's like a, I don't know. I can't remember. I claim Detroit or they're something. So, no, they're so narrow though. That's that's weird. It's almost like a last strip, but it's too thick. Anyway, well, it might not have been a good house. You know, so the future for me holds. I don't know. I mean, I'd, I'd like to think it holds good things. You know, I, I want to help as many people make as much money as possible because that's what I do for a living. Um, and in the process, I want my cut. That's it. I help you make a lot of money, and I make a little money. And I help a lot of people make a lot of money, and I make a little money from a lot of people. Fair is fair, you know. Our property management business, investment business, we are not the cheapest, but we are good, and we are not. We're not. We're not one of the bad guys. I'd like to think we are one of the few good guys, especially in this market. Um, Detroit is full of uh, full of people that are that are that are not going to be around a couple years from now, and weren't around a couple years before now. I've been in this business for twelve years, and I've got a number of people I work with who say to me and have said to me on a regular basis. You're one of the good guys. And I say back to them, you're one of the good guys. And that's where I want to stay. This next section, any books, podcasts, routines, 
routine, success habits, things like that. Okay. Um, every day I drink coffee except for one day a week. Usually, um, I eat oatmeal every day for breakfast with no sweetener, no milk. Um, I try to focus on fruits and vegetables as the mainstay of my diet with some greens and beans. Um, I meditate daily less than I should. At least I think I get a good result from it. Um, just trying to let the thoughts go in and out of my mind and being aware of the fact that I'm a thinking being and that the thoughts are, are part of the process. Um, focusing on the breath, feeling the breath hitting the inside of my uh, nasal passages and the tip of where the, the, the lip meets the nose. Um, I stretch daily and do, uh, do a variety of, uh, basic workouts, trying to get back in the routine of going to the gym a couple days a week, but I really hate it. I like playing sports, but, uh, my knees have gotten bad on me and I had the doctor look at my knees and he says, you got bad knees. It's just, you, you, you drew the short stick on that one. I'm like, well, better that than other things. So I'll take it. Yeah. Life is short. Yeah. So, um, uh, but yeah, um, my wife does yoga a lot. I'm trying to get into that a little bit, but it's fucking, you think, you know, I mean, yoga is tough, man. It's, it's, it's amazingly difficult, it is. <laughs> especially for, for an inflexible, you know, tight muscled, uh, older person who is not a teenager anymore. Um, I read every day. I try not to watch any television with the exception of, uh, I do watch some, some shows. We'll watch a series, watch an hour or 45 minutes, a couple days a week. The apprentice. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, no, none of that. I thought that was your favorite show, Brent. You know, if I want to watch garbage TV like that, I like to watch The Prophet with uh, Marcus Lemonis. It's on CNBC on demand. You can watch it. I mean, his theory is, you know, basically looks and judges business on three things, processes, people, and product. And he says any two of those, if they're good, the business is viable. Um, so from our standpoint, I've got a business with great people. I've cleaned house and made sure that's that's taken care of processes in place and being built that is a process-driven business. I'd like to be in a position where I can step aside as being a key player and have the business still run. That is the uh, the goal for this year, uh, to have that be a position where I can actually step aside from property management completely and have the property management company run and be run well by the processes and some people that are in place and me not being one of them. And then the product itself, good product as far as good turns, good deals, good uh, investment vehicles, um, the whole nine yards. So that's that's what we're focused on there. And then and, and the profit is a good show as far as like junk TV. It's it's entertaining. It's it's a reality show. It's kind of a uh, semi fake, but it's good. Yeah. Any books I'm reading. Yeah. Say what? Do you have any book or books that change your life too? That could be anything, right? Sure. So the Dow, Dow De Ching, that changed my life for sure. What is that? Um, it's uh, you've never heard of the Dow? You've heard of the Yin Yang, right? Yeah. 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 So it's the basis of the Zen philosophy. Oh, okay, yeah. You know, yeah. the soft overcomes the hard. Um, what is a good man but a bad man's teacher? What is a bad man but a good man's job? All right, sinking for a minute. All right. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to it. It falls along the same line as uh, Sun Tzu's The Art of War, but it's not. Uh, it's not as. Uh, it's more more of a positioning from a, from the sage standpoint as opposed to a positioning from a tactical standpoint of uh of dealing with uh things um and certainly sun tzu has been a a good influence but uh i like to keep that uh minimized i'm, I'm more a fan of the uh the outright win-win as opposed to the win-lose and you can have a win-win or a win-lose it could be the same deal just depending on your perspective 
but I like to leave the table with everyone feeling they've won um, because I like to do the same deal again with people. You know, the idea of crushing someone and beating them, it's very juvenile for me anyway. I, oh, I was short sighted too, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, and the thing is, it's not a zero sum game. You know, this is, uh, this is, we're building something here. So it's a different philosophy. You know, it's not like there's, there's only so much to go around and, and I want more than you. It's, there's more than enough for all of us to go around and we need to build this into something better. Um, so that mindset is where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see other things. Uh, we're currently reading, like I said, that Gary Keller one. That's a good book. Great. Yeah. The one, uh, GT, GTD, getting things done by David Allen. Um, certainly that philosophy, you know, I looked into, uh, options for, for, with the cleanup and the process here at the office about productivity. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to look and see what's out there. So I looked up all of the, uh, the big productivity books and, uh, and methodologies out there. And this one had a great amount of energy behind it. So I chose it and said, okay, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel here. I'm just going to read it and adopt it and follow the instructions and to go there. Steal and deploy. Yes. So that's what we've done. I mean, steal and deploy. Sure. I mean, in this case, it's given away freely. So I'm not stealing anything. No, I just, the uh, book. ideas. Uh, that's the great thing. I, uh, ideas. Everybody can have the same one and do the same thing and nobody loses anything. So that's what I mean by steal and deploy. Don't reinvent the wheel, you know? Indeed. Yeah. Anything, um, anything you want to talk about that we hadn't talked about or that I didn't ask? Well, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind the concept that uh, taxes are stealing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you agree. Yeah, I don't agree, but we'll just agree to disagree, you know. Yeah. But I do understand from a conceptual standpoint how someone could make that argument. Is it voluntary? Uh, no, they're not really voluntary. There You're you born go. into this. You don't have a whole lot of choice in it. You know, they are not voluntary. At least you recognize that. They are yeah. enforced at the, at the barrel of a gun in the worst case scenario. But in most case scenario, it's just enforced by... Uh, by um stealing yeah absolutely they take it you don't even have to pay it that's at least in my business i can pay it most people don't even get a chance to pay it it's just taken right out of their check well i'm switching over to that now so yeah i'm I'm an employee now that's not probably not a bad thing either right well i mean yeah i think it's a good thing you know i mean it's uh at least I'm an employee as far as employment goes uh from a from a work standpoint as far as commissions and capital gains go no no, but as far as my regular paycheck goes, yeah, I'm putting myself on payroll along with everyone else in the organization. You know, it's the way we got to be. It's in essence, it's what it is. If you've got an organization, you're running with people, and you you ask them to be at a certain place at a certain time and give them duties that require them to um, adhere to standards that you set, um, and aren't just saying this is what I want done. I want it done by this time, and this is the result I want to achieve. If you add anything more to it than that, they're an employee. Yeah, it's just shit written down on a paper as far as I'm concerned. I don't care about that. Well, these are the rules of the game we play. Well, these are rules other people came up. That's why I don't hire them. Yep. And that's why I'm not a boss either. I figured that out a long time ago. I'm the wrong guy for that. There are right guys, there are wrong guys, and I'm the wrong guy. I was probably the wrong guy for a long time. I'd like to think I'm becoming the right guy because I'm making myself into that. Um, one thing about property management, you know, talk about it as being kind of a necessary evil and something that, uh, that, that I didn't really want to do, but felt I had to do for a long time. As of this last couple of months, I've looked at it and said, you know what? It has an opportunity here to be a good business providing a good service that's absolutely needed 
by many people in this town. There's a huge vacuum in this industry. It's not going to go away either. So when you look at us recession proof, other companies in town doing this, I mean, you can have, you can have five, 10 times the unit. Well, five times the units I have under management right now and still be less than 1% market share. Yeah. There's just so much opportunity. So that's why I talk about the competition. I'm like, I hope that other startups in town um, or established property management companies in town that are good, um, the ones from the burbs come into the city and start doing stuff in Detroit, you know, and do it well. Uh, there are plenty of good property management companies in the Detroit metro area. Unfortunately, there's only two in Detroit. Um, maybe three, maybe three. I mean, there might be another one or two that we yeah. don't know of that just do a hundred or two. Like, like no one knew about us. We we're completely under the radar and we still kind of are. I mean, all our clients came to us because they were brought to us either through a deal that we did with them or a deal that someone else did with them where they brought were brought to us. We don't have, I think, maybe two or three clients who found us organically through internet searches or, or, or and we don't do any marketing. Yeah. So that's all going to change though because we now have a product that is uh, certainly viable uh, and fills a huge need in the marketplace that we're going to promote. So that's that's coming this fall. Awesome. All right, man. Well, I really appreciate your time. You coming out, folks? You should definitely go check out what Brent's working on. Go to ipsrealty.com. Everything is there. Go check it out. I'm sure he has an email newsletter you can go sign up for. He's got deals, does property management, all sorts of things. Go check it out. I really appreciate your time today, Brent. Had a good time. All right. And if you enjoy this podcast and like it, find it helpful, hook a brother up. Here's what I need you to do. I'm going to ask every time, right? I need you to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you haven't already, rate me on iTunes and then share all over social media, folks. I really appreciate if you do that. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, reach out to me at renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. If you're interested in what I'm doing and want to follow me, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. I arrived a little too late to get my name, whoever you are, and YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know. I say it every week. How about you fucking do it? All right. No time like the present. You think you're going to live forever? You're on a fucking flying space rock orbiting a nuclear explosion waiting for what while you watch TV and finger fuck your phone. Why not pick some goals, stick with it, do something every day that gets you closer. All right, folks, I really appreciate your attention. Thanks for listening. And until I catch you on the next podcast, crush it.